You're listening to the Hockey Podcast Network. New shows every day. Find us at thehockeypodcastnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Folks, if you'd like a personalized copy of my new book, Tales with TR, Fights, Film, and Folklore, shoot me a note at terryryan2020 at gmail.com. For only $25 if you're in North America, plus shipping, I'll shoot you out a personalized copy as well as a personalized 8 by 10 That's terryryan2020 at gmail.com. Shoot me a note, get a personalized copy. This weekend's UFC 261 is sure to be a can't-miss event. Every punch, kick, and knockout means so much more with the DraftKings lineup on the line. DraftKings, the official daily fantasy partner of the UFC, is giving you a shot at huge cash prizes. For this weekend's fight, DraftKings is offering all new players a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. If you haven't tried it yet, Fantasy MMA is easy to play. Just pick six fighters, stay under the salary cap, and pile up points for advances, takedowns, and more. Download the DraftKings app now and use the promo code THPN to get a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes throughout the weekend. That's promo code THPN to get a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. Only at DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Welcome to Tales with TR, by the way. I'm your host, Terry Ryan. Half of you, half of you are going to love that opener. It's going to remind you of going to the theater in the 80s. Uh, the other half are saying, what, what's this guy talking about? Good morning, Vietnam. Look it up. It's a fantastic movie. As time passes, it's becoming underrated because I don't see it anywhere. I don't know if it's popular anymore, although it did come out almost 40 years ago, I would think, or 30 years ago, I suppose. Uh, Robin Williams, check it out. This week, we have Matthew Wells. Matt Wells. So, Matt, I tell you, I'm going to get into it now in a second. Um, Matt's a buddy of mine, grew up, born in 1977 from Mount Pearl. We're about the same height. Uh, similar complexion, moved away at a young age. A lot of similarities there with Matt and I. Um, but Matt was in a band called Bucket Truck. As I recall, Matt, like, I don't think he drank, like, in, in high school or anything. 
not that I was a booze bag back then, but you know, you'd go to a party. And I remember that, but he was in this band called Bucket Truck and they were they really, they, they made it fairly big. You'll find their videos on YouTube. Um, they're on a couple of big shiny tunes, I believe. If you're Canadian, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and I got to ask him, he might be, he ended up becoming a, a VJ on much music and led to like hosting um, certain shows. One was uh, coast to coast, I believe. And, you know, he went on this really interesting career in film and in acting. A couple of years ago, I go to the theater and there's a movie Crown and Anchor, which was awesome. And uh, one of those that I, I know Matt pretty well. Um, we weren't like best buddies growing up, but it's hard to be from Mount Pearl and not come across each other. Um, so, especially if you're the same age, but um, yeah, he just... Yeah, anyway, so he created it, he produced it, he acts in it. I didn't realize all that until recently. And I knew he was in the movie, and I knew he was somewhat of a writer, but Maddie lives in Toronto now, does pretty well, gets back here quite a bit. Got a really interesting story, and one that it's hard for me to keep track of. When I have hockey players on, I'm even though maybe we haven't spoken in a long time, I'm fairly up to date. Like with Brian Boucher, I didn't really need a set of notes. The, the interview, I'm glad I had them. The interview could have found its way without them, though, you know, because I've looked at Hockey DB enough over the years that other than being exact with my assumptions, I know where Bouch played. I know, you know, how many, I knew he had f f almost six games with a shutout. I knew generally he had a pretty good goals against average. He was a backup for most of his career with some sensational highlights as a number one. Um, so I knew a lot, but with, with hockey, you got the elite prospects.com or, or the hockey DB. So you can look people up. So let's just say Brant Myers, right? I never played with Brant, but I, it wasn't hard to, I, I knew generally where he played and then one Google search and you can just go, Oh, and it lists the whole, every team he was on all the players on each team, their stats. So, you know, it was easy for me to go, oh, Brent, you were in camp with Brian Boucher, you know, my next guest. I can connect the dots by Hockey DB. Not as easy in the film world, and especially with Matt, because he's not one thing. He's, yes, he acts, but, and he's in Bucket Truck, which are a hard rocking band, a metal punk, maybe you could say. Think Rage Against the Machine, although, although there's all, you know, one album to the next is a little bit different with Bucket Truck. And I've also seen Matt play solo, and I don't know much of his solo stuff. We're going to find out today. Um, but before I get to any of that, um, the first thing I want to do as a Newfoundland hockey fan, and I don't do this enough, things happen around here, and I often don't mention them, but a lot of my fan base is from Newfoundland, uh, listener base, I should say. I hate that word, fan base. Like people are standing up outside with cowbells and oversized foam hands. <laughs> it's not like that. My listenership. So, you know, you're interested in hockey and you like the local tales and everything. Right? I, I love Ron McLean and Tara Sloan, the hometown hockey thing. I love when they come here, but it's a great way to watch Hockey Night in Canada, the, a game on the weekend, because you, you see where these people are from. And you know, they always focus on a little town. And from Humboldt, and we know that story, to Quinnell, where I played, to, to Cornerbrook, 
to Charlottetown, wherever the, wherever it may be, there's all kinds of like local stories that you probably wouldn't hear if you just paid attention to the national scene. Well, we had a guy named Jerry Taylor here who passed away uh, last week. And Jerry, I remember Jerry from going to watch the Mount Pearl Blades when I was a kid. My dad coached the Blades. People ask me often, you know, what does it take or, or, or that, that's the wrong way to put it. Or how did I, what was my path? At what point did I realize that I could play in the NHL? Um, or I could be drafted, you know, like there, there was a chance that I could play professionally, let's say. I don't know that I ever really thought like that. Looking back, I can tell you what the turning point was, though. It was definitely practicing with the Mount Pearl Junior Blades. So in Mount Pearl, like I said, Mount Pearl is part of, it, 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 they usually have a senior team. They have in the past couple of years, but it's the Mount Pearl Blades right from novice right up to the senior. So the junior, when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, even earlier, eight to, to you know, but started skating on the Mount Pearl junior blades were a big deal. And the senior blades became a thing when I was about nine or 10. So, and my dad coached the juniors and then the seniors. So it wasn't just that influence though. It was that my, my mom ran the scheduling for minor hockey at the same time. So often she would arrange it with no bias because a lot of people didn't want the late practice, but we would say practice my say novice Adam Peewee team, uh, say eight to nine. And then the junior team would always be last or, or the senior team, but whatever night they practice or nights, I think it was Tuesdays, Thursdays with games, Mondays, Wednesdays. I know it was at least that for two of the years. That's how much I vividly remember. So, that's what would happen. So when mom started scheduling, which was early on, I was in like novice. That's what would happen. So dad, what we would do, he would coach the team. And then while he was, he had them all called in and he was explaining something. And you know how dad can talk. So often his practices, there would be no limit. It wouldn't be like eight or, or nine to 10 because there was nobody on after. They would design it that way because he would like a lot of his coaching was talking and, and demonstrating sometimes to a fault, but, but the players loved it. And then he would, so while they were doing that, me and say Jeremy Charles, Gary Clark, Steve Kwan, any of my buddies, Sean Gibbons, I was, I was always there, but whatever buddies I was hanging out with, they could come on and take some shots while, while dad was explaining things, which tech, so we were getting all kinds of extra ice time. And then at the end, dad would go off, players could do what they wanted, and we, you know, they're junior players, so we would get off. But there was always a point that after their drills and whatever they wanted to do, they were, they'd started playing, you know, just shots at the end, and we would go down in the other end. So I would be on or around the rink dozens of extra hours, over a dozen a week, because honestly, we would just be hanging around. We were rink rats. And um, Tony Fowlo, Fonce Fowlo, who's – in hospital now, get well, Fonts, an absolute legend here in Mount Pearl, featured on Hometown Hockey, to be honest. Um, Tony Fowler, who's still, well, who's in, uh, got some health problems now, but cross your fingers and pray for him. Um, but he's been a, a constant at the rink. So Fonts used to appreciate that too. So if we were last on, he'd give us a few extra minutes. So we had, you know, our own practice or game or both. And then the juniors would go on and we would tinker out there. And then finally, when they were off, you know, if there was nobody on afterwards, Fonce had let us on for an, you know, 
however long, different era. Now I don't want to get him in trouble. That was years ago. Maybe we weren't supposed to be, but that's what he would do. And um, so just being around the junior team and then the senior team, I found I was learning because, you know, osmosis, you're up around, you see how they act. You're not thinking, you don't have a pen and paper, but just seeing how they handle themselves in a horseshoe drill. Um, or or I remember real early on, uh, Pat O'Keefe, local legend here, I play with his son now on the, on the Caps, and we played on the ball hockey team Canada together a few years. Well, I remember Patty telling me, and he was just doing drills, but it was the first time I ever heard stop in front of the net after you shoot it. You know, most people, including most of that team now, would shoot it, even in the NHL, whatever. You know, you shoot it and you just go back in line. And you're. But if you, some people get in the habit of shooting it and stopping there and going for the rebound. Now, depending on how quick the drill is, you can't do that every time. But when you do get into the habit, you find that over the course of a season, the puck does lie right in front of the net after you shoot it for a rebound, if you just get into that habit, um, you'll probably, just the law of averages, just statistics says that you will probably find yourself in front of the net with a rebound and, and you will score some goals that way. So I remember, you know, certain things I remember. I remember learning how to take a slap shot with uh, Steve Dunn was his name from Cornerbrook. They would bring people in that would go be going to university. It wasn't just local yokel. It was junior B for that reason. And I, I, from here, it, it, you know, in order to make the leap to go to the mainland, you really got to take hockey seriously. And far more people do it now. Back then, there was not a lot. You could count them on one hand. And most of those people, if they went, they really thought they had a shot at major junior or they were playing it or they didn't try. People were content to be here. Now it's a lot different. If you look at the Maritime Junior A-League, oh, God. I had two kids that I know pretty well, Matt McKim and Alex Power, playing the Alberta Junior League. And they weren't the only ones. Drew Bennett is in the BC League this year. Oh, I was a complete anomaly for going to the BC League when I was a kid. So, And, and back then, most people stayed. So think how good, for those of you that follow local hockey now, think how good it would be if most junior, the vast majority, other than, say, Alex Newhook and Dawson Mercers, the absolute blue chip first-round guys, like, other than that, most people stayed here. The vast majority now, it's, I said, it's different. But you still get people, you know, it's still a good junior B league as far as junior B leagues go because there's always people that stay and want to go to school. Whereas on the mainland, uh, either they wouldn't play or they'd, they'd go to another town or I mean, another province is next door. You might even go to university somewhere else playing our murals. But around here, it is something of a, of a tradition. And, you know, if you're junior age and you're good, you generally play. So that being said, that that was the junior blades and junior hockey, um, the whole culture. I grew up adoring those players and anybody involved. And my dad, like I said, was was coaching for four or five years in the 80s. They won the Atlantics. They didn't lose a game one year. They won the Atlantics like they were a great team and a big influence on me. Well, Jerry Taylor Went to a lot of games with me. He, I can't remember if he was on the Mount Pearl executive, but I know he had something to do with running the league for years. He was the president. He was uh, an executive member in, in Hockey Newfoundland, a, a lot of different things. I knew Jerry is, even though he was way older than me. I mean, when I, Jerry, I, I'm not sure. He must have been in his 80s, though. I mean, he, he lived a good, full, full life. But I just want to say that when I was a kid, he would give me the time of day, 
I looked at him like you would look at, I don't know, at the time, Ronald Corey in, in the Montreal Canadiens or, or any, or Brian Burke, say, someone like that, that's been a hockey GM and an analyst and, you know, part of the zeitgeist that, that is the culture of hockey. Well, that's the way I looked at Jerry Taylor, a real hockey mind. And he was always real nice to me, and he did a lot for local hockey. And you don't always hear those names on a national level. So, Jerry, rest in peace. You were always good to me. I thank you for that. And uh, if you're from Newfoundland, look into it. I'm sure there will be an article in the Telegram if there hasn't been already. Check it out. Um, okay, I normally read the Telegram, but um, this week's been crazy busy when you start working on a film set and uh, in the bar and on my podcast and on my book, the next one, all that stuff. Often weeks go by and it seems like days. Uh, I'm actually speaking of the telegram. I'm going to have Robin short on here pretty soon. Who's got a great story. He's been the lead reporter, editor, sports editor for, I don't know how many years, 30 uh, anyway, anyway, um, outside of that, before we get on with Maddie Wells, I'd like to give a shout out to Patrick Marlowe. Speaking of hockey, this is a hockey podcast. I, I'm kind of astounded that Patrick Marlowe is getting a little bit of backlash online. I don't like to give too much attention to Twitter, especially, especially people that hide behind anonymous and they don't so they i mean anybody can be brave then right so i find twitter if you've noticed i don't even go on there much anymore i find it to be poison um all the platforms can be poison um i guess it's what you choose to follow and, and click on right i guess um but in Patrick Marlowe's case, and what I'm referring to is the fact that he broke the record and a lot of people like it was Gordie Howe's record and, you know, how dare him. I, I'm blown away. I, I, I fail to see your argument. Gordie Howe is hockey royalty, of course, but I don't think he's ever going to lose his luster or if he was alive now, rest in peace, Gordie, that he would frown upon this. Patrick Marlowe, he was actually in the Western League when I was out there, and, and I'll get into that, but I remember he came out as a 16-year-old, and he had over a point a game, I think like 74 points in like 70 games or whatever, and everybody knew that he would play in the NHL. I mean, he was 16 again. He was their best player, a couple years younger than I am. Um, and, and anyway, um he broke the record, and, and I mean, I had goosebumps. I had tears in my eyes. You could see what it meant to him. He's from a small town in Canada in Saskatchewan. He's humble. Uh, he, he's had to sign. You're, you're saying, for those of you that are doubting him, I mean, I'll try to undress this. The, the, the first thing you're saying is that I heard the word blasphemous. Gordie Howe is, is a hockey god, and this shouldn't have happened. He's still got to play in the NHL. It's not like anybody can just do it. Hence, I wouldn't be sitting behind a mic here if, if, if I could still play in the, in the National Hockey League. There's the extremes, right? I'm glad I got to play at all. 
He's still playing. But st- teams still have to sign him. Lots of players still want to play when they're that age. I know his numbers tailed off, but he's an important player. And as of, I mean, when was he on the Leafs? Just two or three years ago. Good Lord, he played well for them. Because the reason I bring that up is because a lot of the backlash I see is from Leafs fans. But I'm like, Jesus, he gave you everything he had. He's a heart and soul guy. Great leader, right? You can say whatever you want. San Jose didn't have to sign him again. I know his numbers have gone down, but he means a lot to that dressing room, especially on a losing team. People that are coming in that are young, that are 18, 19. I mean, the team's going nowhere. They get it this year. That's, I mean, that's why he's all that more important. Right now, he's literally passing that torch. I talked with Ryan Clough, who who has had a fantastic hockey career, one of the best Newfoundland hockey players to ever lace up skates. Chloe said, check out Chloe's Instagram post. Talks about how many practices games. He said, practices. Patty never missed a practice. The guy loves hockey. Playing for league minimum. Still to put his body through all that. Still to be valuable. Some people said he's not a Hall of Famer. What the hell are you talking about? He has more than 500 goals. And now he's closer to 600 than 500. I mean, 500 is, is the benchmark, according to Terry Ryan Sr. But you look look into it. 500 is, is a benchmark. You get the odd person that pulls off, you know, a few great years, might, might bow out early due to injury. I don't know. Uh, Pavel Bure, Eric Lindros. There's still great players in there that don't have 500 goals, but to get 500 now, people said, yeah, well, he played so many games. That's the other caveat. He played all the games. That's a big thing to play all those games. And mostly, as I unpack this, I will say, uh, without getting injured, you know, relatively injury-free. I know he had a few nicks and bruises along the way, but we're talking about over two decades worth of playing effectively 20 goals 15 times come on of course he's a hall of famer whoever was going to break the record probably wouldn't have been gordy howe let's be honest gordy howe will often in many people's eyes be number one not in mine although he's number four i guess in mine four i've been through that if you read the uh if you want to know who who i who my top five are five a and five b (laughs) <laughs> and so on, uh, check out my book, my latest book, Tales with T.R. Flights, Film Folklore. There you go, plugging it again. Anyway, I'm not going to get into it, but but he he would be my fourth. Lemieux Gretzky, I don't know what order, or, uh, and that's hard to really place either one of those. You could give me an argument, and any day I could go with either one of those guys as number one. How I don't think was as magical player but there's something to be said he was all around there's something to be said for those elbows and that gordy howe hat trick goal assist fight there you know hockey is violent it is physical at least it is right now and it looks to be for the near future no matter what you think about fighting it's still really physical there's still fights happening and compared to any other sport i know a lot of us traditionalists and i'm on the fence with that some ways i'm a traditionalist some ways i'm not but for people that are right into like the blood and guts of it all and, you know, the beer sponsors and no visors and no helmets, I, I get it. They, uh, and Gordie Howe, for a lot of you, that's probably your number one player. Um, 
I like certain, you know, I'm a traditionalist in certain ways. If I got into them now, I'd take up the whole podcast. Uh, so I don't want to do that, but I'm, it's all subjective. My favorite two players ever to watch are Gretzky and Lemieux. And I, I lean towards Lemieux when I watch the highlights. I do, but still, I, I hate to even say that. I, I feel <laughs> like I'm going to be cursed just saying that because I love both of them. Or I didn't really see live. I wish I did. Um, but to win the scoring as a D and to revolutionize the game the way he did, it would be, you know, totally understandable to put him at number one. God, I think about all those things a lot, you know. Um, and I often find myself at night, uh, nights that I have a few drinks, I'll uh, throw on the old tapes of man, just how Richard, Crosby, all of them. I mean, it's a great game we play, right? Just finesse versus toughness. And uh, most of the greats display one of those things, if not both, uh, at an incredible, awe-inspiring level. Uh, and I'm even including Bob Probert. Tough, good score. But how? yeah, getting back to how, um, he was great. And you could even make the argument, right, that, you know, Howe went and played in the World Hockey Association. If he didn't and he stayed in the NHL for those four or five years, he'd even have more. But woulda, coulda, shoulda. Uh, and hats off to Gordie Howe. I don't think really that his reputation or uh, legacy is going to be affected at all. Not at all. Uh, but Patrick Marlowe has one of, of, of his own. And while he might not be the best player of his era, he's one of them. And while he might not be the number one inductee into the Hall of Fame, he'll be in there. While he might not be the best captain ever, he's one of them. Right? He's way above average in most categories on and off the ice. And I hear he's just a fine gentleman of a man. So I've only played against Patrick Marlowe way, way, way back in the Western Hockey League. Um, and he wouldn't know me, I wouldn't think, from a hole in the wall. But I wish him the best. I'm really proud of him from one uh, Western Hockey Leaguer to another. And just for, for as a human being in these times which can be trying in so many political views and polarizing opinions and so many different viewpoints and uh, so many headlines in your face and so many people taking selfies and wanting credit and so much hate wherever you look. Well, here's a guy that showed up for his team was a great leader, a great friend, a great person, and a great ambassador for San Jose Sharks, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Pittsburgh Penguins, and the league that he represents. Should he be in the Hall of Fame? It's a fucking no-brainer, in my point of view. I think if each sport had more people like Patrick Marlowe, not, he transcends sports. If each organization, if the government had more people, like Patrick Marlowe. If the human race had more people like Patrick Marlowe, 
we'd all be a bit better off. So congrats and enjoy. You're one of the best players ever, and you've earned it. Matt Wells coming up. Ladies and gentlemen, my next guest, Shoots Left, was born in 1977, hails from Mount Pearl, Newfoundland, and isn't named Terry Ryan. He is an accomplished musician, actor, writer, TV host, and producer, amongst other things. Some of his career highlights include fronting the hard-rocking outfit Bucket Truck, breaking onto the national TV scene as host of Much Music's Going Coastal in 2002, interviewing everyone from Quentin Tarantino to Lady Gaga, and creating and starring in the gritty crime drama Crown and Anchor, critically acclaimed worldwide and partially shot right here on The Rock. He is a notable Newfoundlander, a fine filmmaker, an amazing interviewer, a Mount Pearl metalhead, a respected writer, a proud producer, a fine father. He is a good-looking cat, and he goes by Matt. He impressed all the girls growing up in Mount Pearl. We got along cool at my dad's hockey school. Yes, he used hockey six sticks way back in 86. Then he put away the puck and started Bucket Truck. Soon he was coast-to-coast coast as a national much music host. He moved to T.O., but still is always on the go. My uncle was once a banker. He's great in Crown and Anchor. We're both from Mount Pearl with other parallels. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my buddy, Matthew, Matt Wells. Matty, how are you doing? <laughs> oh, man. I was wondering what it was going to be. I've listened to your podcast. What the fuck is he going to say about me now? That was, that was great, man. I could have gone in a thousand like, directions. It makes me feel accomplished. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. You have had quite the i don't know what the word is historic roller coaster ride uh absolutely adventurous career but here's what i know and normally normally you see i have a guest on even there's someone i played hockey with or against and it's easy enough you go to hockey db tells you everybody they played with their stats everybody's you know the power play their plus minus where they were playing that year and then it's just a google search and some story comes up and you, although I know most of your highlights just from growing up and following you here, um, I, I was flabbergasted at some stuff. Even and, and I don't want to skip ahead. The list of people that's just listed that you interviewed is off the charts. I first remember seeing you as a host or whatever. It must have been on Going Coastal with Debbie Gibson. Okay, so that... That was how I knew Matt Wells left Newfoundland, by the way. And you were long gone. I was, I was foggy on bucket truck. I didn't quite know how that started. I remember going to a high school party or two. And correct me if I'm wrong. Did you not drink in high school? You were pretty straight up. I, I was pretty straight. Yeah, I, di I didn't drink a whole lot in high school, but I drank. Okay, like, I just remember being real surprised bucket truck because yeah. they're so in your face like it's it's almost rage against the machine i could it, it's heavy stuff it's heavy stuff so how did matt wells that i knew that went to hockey and, and played soccer and you were one of the kids good looking cat i i always saw you know and you were always well spoken even at like 10 years old i could see you going to school and really becoming something i just had no idea what it was and the fact that it became what it became is surprising so how and why bucket truck take take me from that journey okay cool so um yeah first let me say we do have hockey history 
and we can we can we can get into that not not like in the juniors or anything but you know mount pearl minor blades but i never made i never one year i made the minor blades this is so so inside baseball right no now. but I, I this is big in mount pearl though right yeah. getting that blades jacket in mount pearl yeah. and I have is it. a big thing yeah i have it i only have one because i only made the minors once right was that an adam wasn't it I think, and here's what I remember about you, and I'll never forget, because you went on to do what you did, and I have always respected you as, you know, you always talk about why you love hockey. It's the team, it's, it's the team mentality. And even at that age, I remember we were at the tryouts, and you remember how we go to the, to the tin can in Mount, yeah. in, on Smallwood Drive, and they'd post our names on the bulletin board on the outside. And I was trying out for the majors, and and I was sitting next to you in the dressing room and I was always this way. And my son's like it now. I was like, no, oh, I'm not going to make it. And you were like, yes, you will, Wells. You'll make it. You'll definitely make the minors. You'll definitely make the minors. And you were so sincere, dude. And oh, I was never I? That's a, good to know. I never, now, I didn't make them. I do remember you as a player, though. You shot left. I shot left. Yeah, I was I, defense. I, I remember and, that. Were you defense? And we played like a few house league games in novice or something. Yeah, and a couple. And a couple times, because um, I was like, I was, I didn't make the minors in the majors except for that one year, but I was always good in housing. So I always get the call up. When you were like Chad play. Graham. Yeah. Yeah, you were. Like, you guys were like money in house league. You're just money. And then you would never embarrass. You could play on the All-Star team. Wouldn't look out of place. You were that perfect person to call up. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that. there's our hockey history. But listen, here's the thing with Bucket Truck. I, you would be correct in saying that I was a pretty straight-laced kid. Had this conversation with my mom a lot even now, now that I have kids. Honestly, in hindsight, I never did anything that would have scared my mom and dad in high school. I was, I was, I never, I was afraid to smoke pot. Sometimes I'd go up to the barrel in Mount Pearl, like up in the woods, they call it. Did you go to the barrel? Yeah, I certainly did. Yeah, I remember it well. And someone would give me a beer and I would pretend to take a sip and I'd pour it and pretend to keep drinking it. That was me as a kid. Wow. And then... By the time Bucket Truck came along, and I'll tell you how Bucket Truck came to be. I was in my first year university, and I was supposed to be studying for a physics exam. And I, for some reason, decided to look through the the entire Saturday telegram in St. John's instead of studying. And I found an ad. When you're sitting in the library in Munn, instead of studying. In my in my bedroom in Mount, on oh oh I pitch I, I was gonna go you're in Mun sitting down reading the Mun paper and you're not stoned okay yeah. now I get it okay no this was like ju- this was my first like I'm just one semester removed from high school at okay. O'Donnell and there was one ad Terry about that big for anyone who's not watching it's like literally a small like sm- not as big as like one of those photos you get in a photo booth at the mall. And it was an ad that said, hard rock band looking for singer. Influences are Our Lady Peace, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Glue Leg, and Hayden, who was like a folk singer. And I remember thinking, oh, that's kind of cool. And it said, call Mike. So I called. Oh, wow. I can't fucking believe it. I don't know many people that's ever answered any ad like that, let alone like front man of a band. That's a big nugget of information there that you're going to go in and go, hey, I'm I'm taking over. And then I, and then they said, do you have a demo tape? And I had one from this band I was in, in Mount Pearl out of O'Donnell with Patrick, not Patrick Boyle, Stephen Murphy, Trevor Murphy's brother, Mark Neary. Mark Neary. I do some film work with him. And Jim Tracy. 
All inside Mount Pearl. Doesn't matter. Was Murph a drummer? Murph was a drummer. He I remember, him, I remember him, Trevor. I hung out with Trevor, and he yeah. had drums at his house. Is the only reason I. So anyway, I had we had a demo tape. My band, we were called Untrained Minds, because our minds were untrained. And um, this is taking me way back, by the way. This is taking me way back. I remember this. I remember I just went into like 1991 and I'm walking down Montgomery Street with Jeremy Charles and we go into uh, Trevor Murphy's house. Anyway, keep going. It's wild. So so listen, I drop I drop this demo tape off to Mike Rowe, who (laughs) is the drummer. goes on to become my best friend in life. We make crown and anchor together. But before all of that, and Mike went on to be dead shot on Arrow. Yeah, I noticed before that. Before all of that, I went from Mount Pearl to his house on Carpathian Road with this fucking demo tape, knocked on the door. He opened the door in his underwear because him and the boys, Corey Howell, who's a cop now, and all these guys were hung over from the night before. He looked at me and I said, some other guy, Mike, told me to bring this demo to you. And he's like, okay. Closes the door. Fast forward to like a month later, I start jamming with the band. And within six months, it just started to take off in St. John's. And for 10 years, we thought that's what we were going to do for the rest of our lives. We, you know, I'm really skipping ahead, but that's how it started. And I was pretty straight laced guy in high school. And I think meeting those guys and, and just the, the ability to sort of find my inner voice and aggression through music and heavy music brought out who I actually was. And I went from being like high school fucking president at O'Donnell high school to bucket truck. But I'll tell you, bucket truck wasn't just loud. Like we wrote about politics and social injustice. It didn't start that way. Dude, dude, that's why textbook propaganda liberate the fossils i'm going this is pretty intellectual stuff uh and again i was left when i went away to play hockey on a similar journey traveling and all that and exploring and finding myself i was left with the matt wells school president matt wells yeah okay and then i heard bucket truck i would never ever have guessed that you were in it i, I knew bucket truck around here I, I, the first time i heard bucket truck it was one of these things that was I forget the beer it was Molson or the bat whatever you you twist off the cap and it's like you win this get on a bus and go listen to to bands I thought it was put off by Mun I could be wrong but it was loud I still didn't know it was you and I kind of liked it I I, I got to be honest and it was years um, before I heard more of it and it really stuck out to me and when I found out it was Matt Wells. I had some questions that are going to be answered now. So you you guys got together. Now you're finding yourself, by the way, kind of like you explained, like, you know, how you, 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 um, the real Matt kind of came out, you, you, you you know, you, you, you blossomed. You didn't say that I did, but you you implied it. Um, Some people that never happens to them or my fear is like, imagine some people that happens when they're like 65 years old. You know, like you, you, you weren't guaranteed if, if you weren't there and that didn't happen. Who knows? I believe Matt would have come out at some point, but that's a pretty quick transition because you're, you're everything that goes with frontman from from um, the responsibility, uh, the, the power, the image, the social, the socializing, 
the peer pressure, everything that comes with that. Now, all of a sudden, straight Matt, that happens over the course of it's, it's rapidly uh, evolving. Do you guys move to Halifax right away and do you all do it as a band? Uh, not well, I guess it kind of was quick. So if the band got together in 98 uh, and by January 2000, we moved to Halifax. Like, were you so, noticed yet? Like what happened where I started to see yeah. you guys on, on, on much music? Was that here or was that a result of moving? It was it was a little bit of both. What happened was we got the um, we started playing around town and the kids really liked us and our all ages shows were big, very quick. And I was working in the mall. So kids were going up to Sam, the record man, buying our CD on the top floor, coming down to, to Baluna or the thrifties and getting me to sign the CD. Wow. This is pretty. And that, and that happened. Then Oz, Oz FM started playing uh, one of our songs called Dynamo became like number one in, in the, on Oz FM. And that, then we got the somersault gig with our lady peace at Bowering park. And because of the, that, those things, it blew up pretty quick. We got one video early, but it was shitty. Uh, but Much Music did start to play it. And then, um, and then we moved to Halifax because we were being asked to go on tour. And touring off the province was difficult because there's six guys in the band in a van. And we'd have to drive across the province, get the ferry, and then go. So we thought, let's move to Halifax. And by January of, 20, of 2000, after only being together a year and a half, we were in Halifax making a new record and touring the country. Okay, and I'm going to backtrack just a little bit because of the style of music, which is very heavy. You don't generally, it's not like you, it's not like you hear all kinds of that stuff on the radio. So, you know, if you were, say, a singer-songwriter that played uh, in a rock and roll band and listened to America Growing Up or Bruce Springsteen, you would kind of, by osmosis, have this preset image. When you found yourself and you're coming into Bucket Truck and that whole world, are you catching up or did you always listen to, I don't know, Megadeth or, and, and uh, Slayer bands like that? Or did all that, not only are you changing as a person, but all of a sudden now your knowledge is becoming so big. And, and you know, as, as a, I guess you're taking it all in so fast. Are you also learning the very music that you're playing? Yeah. It's style? A, it's, yeah. That's, a, that's an excellent question. And yes. So two things. First one, the music I listened to in high school and growing up was like, obviously I was into Pearl Jam and Nirvana, but I listened to Harry Connick Jr. How like about I, this? But before you go any further, imagine the junior team I happen to go to from here outside Seattle, Washington. I saw them like I'm, I'm out there while that shit's happening. Can you imagine that? Anyway, we'll talk about that later. I don't want to go into that, but I had to cut um, you off there. So, yeah. So I was listening, like I loved big band jazz I loved old, like I loved a lot of different music, but I, there wasn't anything that was like connecting with me yet. I just loved music. I knew that. Okay. Um, but the beginning of Bucket Truck, when I joined them, there was a lot of songs that were already written, and it was very like Chili Peppers esque. Uh, there was a real groove to it. It was like Chili Peppers, a kind of not that we were emulating I Mother Earth, but it had that sort of heaviness, but more of a groove to it. And it wasn't until we all sort of got to know each other did the sound start to come together. Because at first we were just, here's a singer, here's this other guy, songs were already written and we were getting, we were learning what we wanted to be. And then um, 
so yes, I started to then listen to early Metallica, early Megadeth, Slayer, but also, and more notably, was uh, early New York hardcore punk, and not just hardcore punk, but Washington punk and hardcore, which was like Black Flag, Minor Threat, Gorilla Biscuits, Youth of Today. This, this sort of movement of do-it-yourself punk and hardcore, that is what really inspired us. And I think you and I had a conversation about it once. The two bands that influenced us all collectively the most was Refused and Quicksand. Um, and once we all found that common thing, wow. that's, that's when we started to get, we stayed groovy. It was still a groove to it. Like we had percussion, but then it started to get heavy. And that wasn't until our, our second album waiting to talk and that's when it started to get a, there was like i felt like oh i can have a, a voice here not just saying something cool but saying something that means something and as soon as we did that that's when the band jumped the level and people started noticing it and we were touring and we were you know all of a sudden i wasn't just a guy in a band singing with a band i was a guy who'd get up and say something about 9 11 or i'd get up and say something about wow. u.s politics and people were fucking loving it. And I was loving it. And for about five years, honestly, I there were, shit happens for a reason. But there was a moment when, you know, there was a couple record deals that were offered. We got offered some big tours. We, you know, we played with Slayer. We we played Warp Tour. Like there was a couple moments when I was like, oh, shit, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And it, and it almost broke. Like we got to a point where we were in. See at CBGB's in New York City, like I can't even okay. believe we're at the place. But this is for anyone who doesn't know the the most. This is where punk was born, essentially. Yeah, we're, we're in New York City playing CBGB's. It's a, a record label showcase. This is two thousand and three, two thousand four, middle of the middle, like seven o'clock. The place is jammed. Every record company in a, in New York has come out to see us, and we play. We go back into the dressing room. The president of Roadrunner Records is, Records is there. They're all, and, I'm, and we got a lawyer and a manager, and we're looking at each other, but like fuck a bunch of the buys from St. John's, going, "What the fuck is happening?" Yeah. I'm I'm amazed talking to you now about it. I can't believe it. And then honestly, just it wasn't meant to be. It just started to unravel. Like wow. someone broke an arm, we couldn't go on tour. Um, someone else was wanted was was we'd recorded an album in Sweden. He met a girl. He wanted to move to Sweden. And at Listen, that point, let's go, go ahead. I'll ask you. Anyway, at, at that point, it sort of had run its course, even though we didn't want it to. But it was just like ah, we we sort of missed that. Like it was there, and we just skipped it. But it we were all meant to do other things, I believe. One of the great things I loved about taking folklore in school, I often joke about it, but I loved that you could kind of pick your course. And one of them, I, uh, you know, whereas if I was doing mathematics or physics, like you said, I can't really do that. But in folklore, it's like all, always all kinds of options. So one of them I did was music in Scandinavia. And I, I, I realized what's real big over there is every kind of metal, death metal, new metal, punk metal, yeah. whatever it's going to be. So I was actually going to ask you, did you ever get to go over and play there? And it, I'm assuming your music, if they even heard it, it became big, but you, you just, I had no idea a bandmate went out with someone from Sweden. Is this linked? Did you guys go over there? we never got to play over there. We recorded an album in Sweden and we never got to play any shows outside of North America. So wait, why did you record an album in Sweden? Because of that? 
No, it was because the producers from this from, of this band refused. This band refused, and anyone anyone who's mildly into music should check out this album. It's it's sort of like a mix of a jazz fusion and hardcore and punk, but all politically charged. And this is one of the most influential bands, but they broke up, got back together again from Sweden called Refuse. And the album is called The Shape of Punk to Come. This, this album changed my life. And, and any musician from Dave Grohl to fucking Slash to whoever, they'll say the same thing about this record. And Good, I'm going to play it start. You did mention it. And I, you know what? It fell out of my head. It went in one yeah, ear and out the other. Not to dis. I'm going to listen to it when this finishes, start to finish. Yeah. Keep going. So refused the shape, shape of punk to come. We wanted to work with those producers, so we got in touch with them. They lived in Sweden. We we flew them to St. John's, and we re- and we uh, went out out to Pooch Cove and rented um, an old high school, and we lived there for two weeks and did all the bed tracks, wrote songs, did the bed tracks. Then we went over to Umeå, Sweden, which is about seven hours north of Stockholm. And we lived there for a month and we did all the overdubs and the vocals and I, where I wrote a lot of the lyrics. And because that's where they were from and we wanted to record those same guys. So the last album, so we made this fucking, and I still stand by it. And I got 3000 of them in, in my basement here in Toronto because we broke up shortly after, but I still stand by the record. And no, so we didn't get to play over there, but. But yes, it was, we were connected to Sweden because of that band. Why, why is that type of music so big over there? I, I think it's, I don't know, man. It's a good question because if you look at heavy music and metal in particular, and honestly, hardcore, and if you look at each section, so like if you go to Brazil or in Spain, it's kind of like, it's got, they've got Sepultura, which is like yeah, yeah, really heavy, but the percussive, it all brings the cultural sort of yeah. their own cultural nuances into it. Um, you know, Sweden and Scandinavia, there's some of that really dark death metal, like Napalm Death or whatever those bands are. I, I'm not really sure why. I think it's a cultural thing, but for some reason in Europe, you know, it's just the sort of stark and darkness of metal. Um, because you know, culturally, when you think, you know, when you think about North America, like how long has Canada and, and America actually been countries, right? When yeah. would, would America become America in late 1700, right? But when you think about these other countries, you can go back to the Roman times. There's just this different history and yeah. there's, more, there's a different sort of rebellious nature. And which is why hip hop became so big in America. Hip hop is the rebellious America, yeah. American music, right? Like, like, you know, the black kids rising up from from the the impression of of white North America, and that's sort of where um, a lot of that heavy heavy dark metal came from. These these countries that were under Roman rule for years, right? And that's just a small do- deep you know dive into the surface of it. But I think that has a lot to do with it. It's just like it's it's a cultural and a historic thing. It's interesting. Um, I so I. <laughs> A couple of summers, I went over to a place, Vasteris. It's in northern Sweden. I, Montreal would give us money to train. If, if, we, if we sold them that this was a good place to go, then they'd give us the money to go. And we, Brad Brown and I wanted to travel. So we went. It was Nick Lidstrom's hometown. But I, I, I ask all this. I'm fascinated because it was what you think. It was um, 
when I think of Europe, although I've been over there, so I, I don't know how I thought about it in the beginning, but a lot of people are active. A lot of people are out, at least in that area I, I found running or there's not a lot, a whole lot of overweight people. It didn't seem, um, you know, it just seemed like a vibrant kind of place. And we'd be like by the lake in the summer, you know, we'd go to practice with the local team and then that, that's how it would work. And then we'd uh, go sit by the lake and there'd be, you know, a group of girls and guys, mostly blonde, getting out with their uh, little kayaks or whatever. And then the, the door would open and you'd hear the music and it'd be like, and it was just, whoa, whoa, over here, uh, it'd be John Denver. Now, someone over there explained to me they had their own way, way back. Like we have, you know, the Beatles influence a lot of bands over here. Uh, Pete Seeger, you know, folk going go way, way back. And then, you know, take what you want of the R&B scene, which all ended up being rock and roll. I've heard that they had some influencers like that way back in the 20s and 30s. I, I, I don't know who they were, but that would make sense. Who knows? Yeah. You know, listen, we could have we could have hours conversation about this. I would say a couple things for you and for anyone listening to, to this podcast. There's a podcast called um, the Winds of Change. And it's about that Scorpion song. Yeah. Of change. Jesus, I saw them. Yeah, I saw them play in uh, in Switzerland. Jerry, <laughs> listen to the listen to this podcast because it's a deep dive history into the in theory that that song was written by the CIA to help quell the violence um, when the Berlin Wall was coming down. Wow. Wow. Listen to that podcast. OK, I will. And then the other thing I would say is the thing with Bucket Truck is and I'm kind of happy it went this way. We became a real cult phenomenon. We didn't sell a shitload of records, but we were an independent band. We kept our independence. But with the hindsight of time and age, I realized what a special thing it really was. And even though we didn't get the record label, we said no to some of them, even though we didn't have a goal record. You know, I had this kid a year ago reach out to me, this, this you know, um, uh, he, what's his background? I think he might've been Beothic. Um, and I, I'm sorry for getting his exact background, but he lived in Halifax and he, he wrote a dissertation on bucket truck for university and he sent it to me and I fucking cried yeah. because I hadn't thought about the band in, in so long. And he did such a deep dive into the lyrics, talk about what it meant to him. He basically said as this kid growing up in Halifax where he didn't see a lot of people who looked like him, he, our, our band was like the news to him. This is how he found out about what he needed to think about, about social and civil unrest. And that broke me. Like, I couldn't believe it. So when I, when he, and then I emailed back and forth with him and he, he was just brushing off just basically. And I wrote this and meant so much to me and I couldn't say enough to him. And it, it was a pivotal moment for me. Like it actually changed how I thought about the band and about what I had written as a kid in my early 20s. That's uh, impressive so, and intriguing. I, I didn't know that. I love know, filling in these blanks. I knew the goalposts. Yeah. I didn't know what yeah, was yeah. And I know, and, I'm, and I know it sounds kind of braggy, but it's not. It's just like I don't really talk about Bucket Truck that much. And it, But that band, if it wasn't for that band, I never would have got on much music. And if I didn't get on much music, I never would have started acting. So everything I have in my life is because I, I was in a local St. John's downtown band. Interesting. And that's, I wanted to get in. I, I can honestly talk to you about that for the next four hours. You know me, but I, I got to move on. I mean, I, the lyrics I was going to get into and maybe, maybe we'll get there someday, but I want to move on because it's such a huge part of your life and, for people 
I remember around here when you started on Much Music, uh, it was Going Coastal was the first one, right? Mm. So how did that come about? I'm guessing, and you just kind of implied it, but that some that Bucket Truck was the platform. I still don't see how one leads to the other. I see a lot of the same people. There's a bit of a Venn diagram with a slight overlap, but I still don't see one leading to the other. Uh, tell us how it happened, and I guess from that point on, you moved to Toronto, I'm assuming. Yeah. Well, you know, like any band uh, in the East Coast at the time, before it was going coastal, it was called Much East, right? And you had Terry David Mulligan did Much mm -hmm. West. And then yeah. you had Mike Campbell doing Much East. And all I wanted was to get Bucket Truck on Much East. So when Much East would come out to St. John's to cover Peace Accord, I would go find Campbell and I'd be the pestering band manager. You got to put us on the show. You got to put us on the show. And he did. And I kept this, this sort of dialogue going with him. And then when we moved to um, Halifax and all of a sudden, you know, we were the band, sort of the band everybody was talking about in Newfoundland. And all of a sudden we were the band everybody was talking about in Halifax. And that's where Mike Campbell lived. So we were always on Going Coastal he, because we had music videos. The thing with Going Coastal at the time when Much Music was still playing mu music videos and before YouTube, you know, came along and that's when you could watch them. We were one of the bands he could play all the time because we could, he could play a video and we had a couple. And then Campbell was a little long in the tooth for a much music host. Like he was pushing 50, I think. And he would take his vacation and he started saying, yo, can you uh, guest host for me? I'm like, yeah. Ah, and then here's he, what happened. And then he was getting ready to leave because they were pushing him out. He was 50. Wow. He'd been at the company for 20 years and they were going to do a big DJ search. Now at the time, like, I wanted our band to be on much music, but I didn't want to be a fucking DJ. I was like, no way. People will hate Bucket Truck if I do that. <laughs> so then, so then the surprise they didn't end up. Yeah, you 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 made that transition, which isn't always smooth. <laughs> no. And then I remember that they were doing a DJ search in Halifax for this job. And Campbell was pushing for me because he knew I loved music. He knew I loved the music scene and I knew it, especially East Coast. And he was pushing for me. And they called and said, I was working, Terry, I was working at TGI Fridays at the Halifax Casino. Okay. Yeah. And they well. called me and said, would you come out to this VJ search? And I, who the fuck am I? I said, um, I don't, I don't want anyone to see me in line. Like people in Halifax know me and I, I, from my band, I don't want anyone to see me in line. They were like, thinking oh. like a manager though. <laughs> they, were, they were like, okay, well, can you come when we're done for the day? And I went, uh, all right like like a total dick and i went there and then they said okay can you do a throw for us and i didn't even know what a throw was i said what do you mean they're like well just say something to camera and i'd watch going coastal every week so i just they took me outside the hotel put a camera camera on me and i remember saying something like what's up everybody my name is matt wells you're watching going coastal coming up we got an interview with classified video from matt mays and we're going to talk to joel plaskett from thrush hermit see you after the break and that was it. And they called me a week later and offered me the job. Wow. Now, that, that's amazing. You get the gig. <laughs> Are you deciding who you're going to interview? Because over the years, and one leads to another, I, I don't remember uh, where you at, baby. Was that? I, that I only got that one. That's when I moved. That's when they asked me to move to Toronto and take over as the, the host of Much More Music. Okay. So I must... I, 
I mean, I probably saw it and didn't realize what the name of the show was, which like all these people I, I realized that you interviewed. I knew Huey Lewis. I didn't know Benicio del Toro. Is this all under the same hat that you're? No. So for the first four years. So I don't mean those people specifically. I mean, I mean, the whole kit and caboodle. If you Google your name, yeah. you know, dozens of major yeah. artists. That's what I want to yeah. know. So anyway, keep going. So from 2002, which is when I got the much music job. So if you think about the timeline, Bucket Chuck starts 98. I moved to Halifax in 2000. By the late summer of 2002, now I'm the host of Going Coastal, right? Um, and I do that for four years okay. where whoever's coming out to the East Coast, like Michael Buble is playing a show, I'm interviewing him. But also like Monine is coming to play, Alexis on Fire before they were huge are coming to play. Feist is playing at the Marquee Club. Those are the interviews I was doing. I was also the videographer. So I had to film, I had to learn how to use a beta cam nope. and I filmed the bands. So for four years I did that. I would simultaneously tour with Bucket Truck, but have to deliver half 30 minutes of a TV show every week. Um, so what they allowed me to do was do it from the road, which was fine with them because they were getting higher production value. They wouldn't give me the money to go fly to um, Quebec to interview Grimskunk or whoever the, the indie band might be. But I'm like, yo, I'm going. Can I bring the gear? And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Wow. Interesting. Did you have I mean, you got your finger on the pulse of the music world then. So did you were you helping them or were you just here? This is who you got, got this week or were you planning were you calling them and saying, look, guys, this is who we should interview this week. This is what I'm going to do. We're torn with Bucket Truck. This is an up-and-comer, I'm telling you. Or were you told? For the most part, what was great about that job, and I got really lucky, was that they didn't give a shit about going coastal. We were there to fill Canadian content. They needed this content to keep their broadcast license. We were on at midnight on Sunday. They didn't care. But wow. people, musicians. What a great situation to be in for you. Yeah. You're not so, tied down, but you, you know, you, you, you kind of got way more uh, freedom of creativity than most people do in that position. Yeah. So, um, so I really did curate unless there was something specific. And I had to, I had to, you know, be friendly with the label partners, whoever represented Warner or Sony and BMG in Halifax, if they had a young artist they wanted on the show, I had to play nice. So they would give me Feist or Michael Buble the next time they came to town. Um, but mostly it was they just trusted me to, to, to do what I wanted. And, you know, listen, not for nothing. We I, I did hours of interview with Classified before anyone really knew who he was. Buck 65. Oh, oh, Fight, love, love both of them, actually. Like Matt Mays, Universal Soul, Winter Sleep before when they were just playing to Ooh. 30 or 40 people. So, you know, and all that like that's Canadian music history, right? Some of the first interviews with these artists or like the big interviews and even Joel Plaskett, like Fresh Hermit was a thing, but before Joel was became known as like this prolific folk songwriter, I was putting him on going coastal. Not that he needed me, but this is his outlet, you know? And so it was, I, I feel so lucky to have been part of that. And I took the job very seriously, more seriously than I think someone who wanted just to be in television would, because I knew how important it was culturally to East Coast musicians to get on that show. And I felt like every week they were watching me, not watching much music. They're like, what the fuck is Wells doing? And is he doing it right? So I felt a lot of pressure and I took it really seriously. And 
I just, you know, whatever I was doing, they in Toronto, they liked it enough to say, let's get them up. And that was 2007. Okay. Now, I have no idea. Like I said, I did a search. Uh, I knew most of your accomplishments. And the only thing I remember at first, I remember, I remember hearing Bucket Truck that, whoa, like, whoa, Matt Wells. And I did the same double take when you were interviewing Debbie Gibson. Am I wrong? I couldn't, I didn't look yeah. it up. I, I just remember why it, it I, I seem to remember you were in the Hollywood Hills. Did you not yeah. travel all over? Now, wh what took you there? Not specifically Debbie Gibson, but you started doing that a little bit more traveling around. Now you're like you end up on stage with Sammy Hagar here in this story. Somehow, yeah. you know, connect some dots for me, whichever direction you want to go. Fine, because I know Please. nothing. Like I said, I know the goalposts. I know nothing in between. Now, listen, are your are, are your listeners going to be pissed off that we haven't talked about hockey? Should I, uh, should I, they, that's all good they know yeah all right because i you know i got some i got some hockey stuff that that blends into much music but let, let's just go oh well no no they, they will like that you feel free to pepper that in after this i okay. want to know well all well, of a sudden you start walking around the hollywood hills right. in these major celebrities houses something happened another <laughs> timing i'm realizing i thought timing was you know on your side, although you got to work for that, right? I'm not saying you didn't, but from the phone call here at at home when you're going to Mun, or yeah. or your search, not a phone call, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's not like you got lucky, but you you, you know timing each platform that you end up moving on to, something happens that well, seems to be in your favor. How how did one lead to the other there? What is it the saying? Luck is when when uh, when opportunity meets preparation, right? It certainly is. I don't know who said that, but it's definitely one that should be a key. So, so though, every time an opportunity came along, I was ready for it and I had been working for it. And so that's what I think luck is. I believe that I was lucky, but I was also ready. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah. going coastal, I do that for a little while. Bucket truck is winding down. My wife is pregnant with our first baby. I'm like, and because of going coastal, I'm getting this attention. I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting agents, TV agents are, are finding me. And I remember saying to my wife, like, I get, is this, maybe this is a career, you know? And then I get, wow, I'm surprised that it took you this long. I figured you went up there as partially an actor. I really did. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no desire or, or inkling to ever be on television ever. Okay. And, um, so then after, you know, three and a half, four years and going coastal, they say, would you like to come up and be the new host of much more music with Tracy Melshore? Mm. And, and honest to God, Terry, at the same time, I had an offer on the table that wasn't as, um, wasn't as real yet, but it was getting there to be a the new host of VH1 in New York. Oh, wow. And I, and I said oh. to Heather, I was like, what are we going to do? And we wanted to go to New York. I'm like, I want VH1. And I told my boss that in Toronto and much music. And they were then were like, you need to give us an answer now. So I, I risked losing both of them or taking one of them for sure. Good so <laughs> I, so I took, took Toronto. Now I think VH1 wasn't going to happen for me. So I, I think I made the right decision. So You're a songwriter now, aren't you? On top of everything, you should write a song about that. That's, right? 
So then what, what a so unique then, uh, decision to have to make anyway. Yeah, it was, it was, but luckily, you know, we were young and um, you know, we could have went anywhere. Right. We didn't, you know, we weren't, we weren't locked in with kids yet. We had one on the way, but we still felt pretty free. Right. Um, so I took the job in Toronto. I was now the host, one of the two hosts of much more music, which had grown and become pretty big, but because I was the musician um, and, and I had, gained this respect as an interviewer they were still using all my interviews on much music and specifically the new music so i wasn't the host of the new music but the all the labels wanted me to interview him because strombolopoulos had left and in fact when strombo left he called me when i was still in halifax it was either him it might have been him or his producer but they said it was him he said you should come up and take over the wedge and loud and the new music and i was like yeah Okay. But of course he wasn't his decision. He was just sort of saying, you should be the guy. And then, you know, then the company were doing whatever they were doing. So then I went to much more music, but they were using me. So I was still on much music, but I was the face of much more music. Then where you at baby comes along. Someone pitches a show for me within the company, which is basically we're going to go and track down these sort of one-time famous pop stars from the much music era and go and just see what they're doing now and see, but we want, we want the interviews to always be active. It's not sit down. So in particular with Debbie Gibson, what does she do now? Well, she's a musical theater nerd and she has a theater school. So we want you to talk to her while she's doing those things. So we went to her theater school and we went to her house because she has this piano that used to belong to Liberace. And Wow. that's where we did some of the interviews. So yes, we were up in her house in the Hollywood Hills. So where you at baby? We did nine episodes. I got nominated for a, whatever the Canadian screen award was at yeah, the time I saw that, yeah. for best host. And I'm like, I guess I'm a TV host now. And then, but at the height of that show, it's now on much more music. They start playing it on Bravo. They start playing on CTV. It's becoming very popular they decimate much more music. They fire everybody except me and two producers. Oh man. And so the show goes away, but before it went away, we did Debbie Gibson in LA, Huey Lewis at his ranch in Montana. Huey Lewis, man. Yes. Sammy Hagar in Cabo. Um, And there was an old Tiffany. Yeah. Uh, in Nashville. And so we got to do all these really cool things with these artists and the show could have been something, but it was a budgetary thing. And they were like much more music is not making enough money, but we need, we like the channel. We like Matt. And I stayed there for another, I guess, six years. Wow. Interview, um, interviewing people, but that's sorry to answer your question in a long winded way. Then I started to host MTV movie night for MTV Canada, which was owned by Bell. So I would, I would do interviews at TIFF. I would interview any, anybody who came into Toronto to promote something, or if, if they were flying me to, to interview someone for a movie junket or whatever, I was the guy. So not just that much more music. So that's why it's like Quentin Tarantino and Ben Kingsley. And so it was like that. Quentin Tarantino, by the way, yeah. I saw some influence in Crown and Anchor. I remember sure. thinking, you know, there's a difference between copying and being influenced. And I mean, if you watch any Quentin Tarantino movie, the first, sure. I mean, I love the good, the bad and the ugly. <laughs> we, you know, sure. What one is connected to the other. 
30 years had passed, but one's connected to the other. But I did see, um, it doesn't surprise me, say, that I assume now you're a Quentin Tarantino fan. I just saw that you interviewed him. Was that at TIFF? No, that was in New York for the premiere of Django Unchained. And okay. I, got to, I got to interview most of the cast that day. I mean, um, I, I, my next few questions are going to be like, yeah. so generic when people see me they go what was it like to play in the nhl man i don't know i can but i mean i don't know what else to say i mean yeah. what the no, fuck good. was it like to interview quentin tarantino to be in that situation i know is, you know i know there's one thing that he's famous but very interesting for someone like you i assume a, a little bit of not an idol but definitely an influencer yeah so quentin i'm, I'm a quentin tarantino kid there's no doubt about it um this this was a big deal for me but there's a big difference um, between the types of interviews that, that you do in, the, in, this, in that job. It's not really my job anymore. But in that life, you, I got to do all of them, which was either you're doing a sit-down, one-hour-long, in-depth interview, which I did with, like, John Lydon or Mumford and & Sons and Kid Rock. You sit down and you go through their whole life. But then you do these junket interviews where you're getting three to five minutes with somebody. Yeah. And those are hard. Those are actually harder because you got to go in and your first impression, you want them to like you because they've already done 30 interviews and they don't want to be there anymore. So I, that day it was me and whatever other people were interviewing the, it was Jamie Foxx, Kerry Washington, Christoph Waltz, uh, Sam Jackson and Quinn. And you'd go in, you'd sit outside in the hotel. You'd sit there, you got your time slot. They go, okay, Matt Wells. You'd walk in, you'd put on a mic. They'd go to Quentin. Quentin, this is Matt Wells from MTV Canada. Oh, hey, man. Hey, how are you? And you got to get him with the first question. I, I knew I'd get him. So I think I asked him something about, um, I said, Quentin, you know, you don't get enough uh, credit for your love stories, you know? He's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, beauty. And uh, so I talked about that, and then I had him, and then we talked. You know, then I got two more questions, and that was it. Um, so, but it was still a big deal, but what a cool job, Terry. Like I get to watch Django Unchained in a theater by myself yeah. before it comes out. <laughs> Love it. Right. Yeah. And then I get to go interview all these people. So even though the junkets were hard, it, you get to do interviews like that. And they were, they were fucking, cool. you must almost that, that must've been surreal. It, it must I know you're way into your career now, but I, I don't mean the, the Quentin Tarantino. I'm saying what well, you just explained all of a sudden you're in this life where it's one thing. <laughs> to be a film critic, say, and judge these, these works of art. But it's another to be indulging in all of it and then to have somewhat a, a, a relationship, albeit a five-minute one, but it's still a relationship with the, you know, the people who created it and, and helped it um, move along and the actors and the producers. It's amazing the world. And, and you, as an artist yourself, again, you're not a reporter. You're not a film critic. Those things kind of come in under the hat but you're first and foremost you're a musician and you're an artist yourself um yeah so i, I guess i don't really have a question what i have is that at, at some point when you when you come along it must have you must have to pinch yourself and go like at what point were, were you like okay like i'm doing this what am i going to do next because i'm doing exactly what i want to do yeah it was um everything you're saying is right and i thought thought that way as I went. Um, I, I always felt like I was cheating a little bit because I was a musician interviewing musicians and they always sort of respected me a, a little bit more right away yeah. when they knew or if they knew. And 
And then the same with these, um, you know, you know, Quentin didn't know who the fuck I was, but they could tell pretty quickly yeah, just from your first question. Right. And they, so because I came from that side of it, uh, I always had a good rapport with my interview subjects. And I will say though, that is what, that is what led me to want to pursue writing and acting because it was bubbling inside of me. But what, what better schooling could I have for three years to be interviewing the world's most renowned actors and directors and asking the questions I was curious about. That was my school. That was my film school. It's great. Yeah. Um, I find again, we have a lot of parallels because hockey was my first vehicle. Like bucket truck was say yours. Yeah. Oh, I wanted, I'm not going to say unsuccessful. I made the NHL bucket truck became your, the, the you know, hugely successful, albeit a cult following at this point. But, you know, we, we use those vehicles that, and, you know, just ended up somewhere completely different. But, you know, when you were doing that, what rubbed off on me, I ended up writing short films and trying to act. I was sure. doing locations on set, right? And it was the, the only job I, because I wasn't qualified for anything but that. But then I'm there and I start like, I, right away, I started paying attention. And the good thing is, then I, I was stand in one year. So I'm always like around ground zero. So I could kind of take it all in. And then I knew too, like when you're saying you knew, right away Matt Wells came out. Well, I knew it, like I was always in creative writing as a kid, and, and, but while I was playing hockey, it couldn't have been any further away. And, but I was kind of waiting. I, I wasn't as surprised when it came out, but I didn't think I'd ever actually get a book published or like be in a movie or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, it, we, we did really kind of, we did, it wasn't the exact, but being from Mount Pearl, the same age, r- relatively the same yeah. size, born in the same year, I find there, there are many parallels and that's one. I got to ask you specifically because the Tarantino interview, while mind-blowing to me, again, he's one of my idols when it comes to film. Um, it was short. Whole new level. I, I didn't realize you visited Huey Lewis. You, you alluded to me before that you, you knew yeah. Huey Lewis and you became close. I didn't realize you went. I mean, this is intimate and personal. Like, you're, you're going to his place. You don't have to give me huge details like where it is. But, like, <clears throat> how was that experience? And you guys connected as... Artists, I assume, musicians. Tell us how it went, because I know you're still talk to them. <coughs> yeah. Talk to them, right? Um, it started in New York. We did an interview in New York um, at like this deli that he likes, and we went and and he we did an interview with the choreographer on Chicago on Broadway because Huey had done that. That was the per- first part of the interview. The second part was going to be at his ranch. It's in Missoula, Montana. Oh, I've been there. Yeah. Driving across uh, the United States. Yeah. Beautiful little place. Huey fucking picks us up at the airport. Right. Such a good guy. So we spend like three nights at his ranch, maybe two nights. Uh, He's got like, I don't know, a thousand acres. You can fly fish. Um, Oh, wow. Exactly what you would think. And he so part of our interview was. No, that's not what I would think. I would think he lives in a high rise in New York. No, No, Huey. Huey is salt of the earth. Um, like once, like legitimately wishes he could move to Newfoundland and fish. That that's what Huey wants to do. Really, you know, my my um, preconceived notion, which it should, it it's often just what you see. And I love Huey Lewis and the News as like they're my favorite bar band of all time. That if I said that to him, it might sound like an insult. But it just it sounds like I'm in green sleeves. Like every song that they have, it sounds like it'd sound wicked in a bar. And I just see him in that role all the time. I don't know why he's Huey is such an intellect and 
he's he's actually really put out legitimately so that that Huey Lewis and the News are not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and they probably will never get inducted because I'm they surprised. were because they were always considered a pop band because they had pop success, but they were a rhythm and blues band. Yeah, probably one of the best. You <laughs> oh, know? That's interesting. And yeah. but because they were such a big pop band and so successful, it's kind of like the Phil Collins effect where his songs were so, so in your face that people got sick of it and they don't want to give it the credit that it really deserves. But when you listen to like Huey's lyrics, specifically like um, Hip to be Square, like people think Hip to be Square is about someone who just doesn't want to do drugs, right? No, he but used he, to do drugs, didn't he? Or, or am I? No. Or, well, he or, just, he, I, I took it like he used to be a, a boozer and he quit. No, Hip to be Square is about um, how there was a time when hippie culture was like, this was how you rebel. And then by the eighties, hippies were wearing suits. And then you were, you would listen to a, a tr like a truck commercial and there was an old fucking muddy water song. Cause all these hippies who knew music were now the suits. And they're now they're instead of worrying about what kind of weed they're smoking or what concert they're going to, they're trying to figure out what's the best kitchen I, can, <laughs> kitchen I can get, right? So that's what that. but but Huey hates that people don't get it because he's actually an intellectual guy, and um, well because so, it opens. I used to be a renegade, so I thought. It, but it's not introspective. He's just saying, like a lot of people, it, you know, in this culture, I used to be. But he's saying he's now saying, it's hip to, <laughs> hip to be square is about how the hippies bought in. They I love fucking it. Sold out. That's I had no it. idea, Matt, and I consider myself somewhat of a music nut. And I know most Huey Lewis lyrics. I think I could sing that. It's one of those songs I could sing start to finish. Yeah. And I, I'm not, I guess, I'm not really absorbing it. Uh, but I will from here I, on in. I, I've got, I, listen, I don't know how long this podcast is going to be, but I have two, two things I think that, that people listening will be interested to hear, and you would as well. You Good. tell me where you want to go, okay? One, I think we got to do something hockey-wise. Yeah. Right? But two, I can tell you, a Huey Lewis story that will fucking blow your mind. And I've only ever really told it on stage a couple times. It's never been recorded, but I don't mind telling it. It's quite personal, but it's kind of funny. Okay. Well, if, if one story being the second one, although not involved with hockey, uh, you, it, it, and this involves Huey Lewis, Huey Lewis transcends music. He's a worldwide cool cat. He's like the Zasecki's guy. It helps that he had so many hits, and I love him. I'm going to pick that one. I hope that we get to hear two of them, but basically because I have the microphone. Yes, it's a hockey podcast, but in this particular case, we're going okay. with me. Here we go. So when I first met Huey, he was just getting divorced. He was going through a divorce with his wife, his, his first wife. And it was interesting because, and a little bit of a throwback, but when I first met Mike Campbell, going back to the Going Coastal thing, I was 19. Campbell would have been in his late 40s, mid 40s, and he was going through a divorce. And for some reason, him and I became friends. I think it was like a father-son type thing. Fast forward to Huey Lewis, I meet him at a time he's going through a divorce. And for whatever reason, him and I connect. Now he's got a son, I met his son. But Huey and I start to connect is why the interview was so good. We remain in contact. Um, 
<clears throat> the second the second concert I ever saw in my life at Memorial Stadium in St. Yep. John's was Huey Lewis. My Me dad. too. Hall and Oates was one week, and Huey Lewis was the next, and I can't remember which was my first one of right. them though. I was at the same one. Yeah. So I went to that Huey one with my dad. My dad loved Huey Lewis. I remember being in my dad's car with with the Huey Lewis sports oh, tape. Christ. Like my I went dad, with my dad too. <laughs> my dad loves Huey Lewis. So now you're gonna find out really quick where I'm going with this. Huey's going through a divorce. Okay. My, my parents are divorced. Yeah. I'm, I'm in Montana. Uh, I get Huey to call my dad. My dad's now going through his, he just gone through a second divorce. And right? who has all the Huey Lewis albums on tape. So I say, can you call my dad? Yes, of course. Dad talks to him. Cut to a year later, I take my dad to Niagara Falls to go to the Huey concert. We go backstage. Huey shouts out my dad from stage. It's brilliant. Oh, wow. Here's the story. Huey sends me an email. Maddie, I'm going to Newfoundland to play a show. This is maybe, I don't know, man, six, seven years ago. Going to play a show in St. John's. Do you have any family there? I said, yes. My mom and my sister would love to come out and see you play. And uh, they go to the show. And they, they have these sort of backstage passes, right? Huey says, make sure you tell them to come say hello to me. They go back. My mom doesn't give a shit. My sister's like, come on, come on. Someone comes out and says, uh, starts saying to people, how do you know Huey? How, do you, how did you get this pass? Oh, I got this at the radio station. They get to my mom and my sister. How did you get this pass? Oh, he knows my son, Matt Wells. Oh, one second. Huey comes out. Where's Maddie's mom? Where's Maddie's mom? Meets my mom, meets my sister. Shakes my mom's hand. Um, he starts saying, "Oh, guys, this this is uh, this is Maddie. Remember from Much Music? This is Maddie's mom. Maddie, Matt's, Maddie's a big star in Canada. Big stars Canada." My mom and my sister looking at each other like, "No, he's not." He's not <laughs> <laughs> Huey, Huey shakes my mom's hand, and he goes, "Oh, your skin is so soft." Now my mom wears a wedding ring, my grandmother's wedding ring, because she's very attractive and people hit on her. Yeah, and. Huey immediately goes, now I met the father. Where's the father? And she goes, well, we're not together anymore. Oh, that's right. That's right. You guys want to come have a drink with us later? My mom's like, no, 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 no. My sister's like, yes, we do. <laughs> Fast forward. They go to the bar, I think in the old Delta, whatever that hotel is now. Huey's there waiting. Mom and my sister walk up to the bar with Huey. They're having drinks. Wow. Huey is smitten with my mom. Okay. <laughs> He's buy, he's tries to buy her drinks. She's no, it's okay. I can buy my own drinks. He's oh like, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> They're talking. So two, this is the two parts of the end of the story. First, I get a text message at my desk in Much Music, at Much Music in Toronto, working late, from my sister. I don't know what's going on. It says, oh, my God, Huey's going to be our new stepdad. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck's <laughs> happening? So I get the story later, and here's what happened. Huey tries to buy mom a drink, like, now I'll buy my own. Then he starts, he gets a couple drinks, and they're like, he's loosening up. And he says, hey, Sh hey Sharon, um, what, would, uh, what do you think Maddie would do if I sent him a text now and said, I'm having a drink at the bar with your mom? And mom goes, well, I don't think Matthew would have a problem with that. And they go on, they're doing their thing. My sister's laughing. And then after another drink, he says, hey, Sharon, what do you think uh, Maddie would do if I sent him a text? He said, hey, Maddie, I'm having a drink with your mom in my hotel. And she smiles and says, no, I don't think he's going to have a problem with that. And my sister laughs. 
He has another drink and he goes, hey, Sharon, what do you think Maddie would do if I sent him a text and said, hey, Maddie, your mom's in my hotel room. And my mom, <laughs> and my mom goes, not going to happen. And he, which he loves, right? And then he says to her, we're doing a bunch of shows around Atlantic Canada. You should come on the, do the, to these shows. Come with us. And my mom, like she's a fucking 1950s war bride, looks at him and goes, Huey, I bet you have a woman at every port. <laughs> and he laughs and she says, I'm going to, I got to go. He says, really? said in 1920. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then he, then he says, um, she says, I got to go. I got to work in the morning. And he walks her to the door and he's like, I don't want you to go. And she's like, I got to go. And he's like, can I have a kiss? No, he goes, he says, what do you think Maddie would do if I said, hey, Maddie, I, I, I asked your mom for a kiss. She goes, I don't think you'd have a problem with that. And he kisses her and she go walks off into the night like a fucking cowgirl. Huey just standing there oh my and my, with my sister. And then he goes, I should have got her number. I, I, I got to ask Maddie. And my sister says, no, you don't. And she takes his number. My mom's number, puts it in his phone. And then for the next two years, I, I believe, and I still joke with my mom, that one, Huey and my mom were waiting for me to broker the deal. But wow. I didn't. And he would send me emails and say, say hi to your mom, Maddie. Like, you know, like you would like in Boston, like say hey. hi to your mother. And he'd make these jokes. <laughs> so it sort of faded away. But there was a moment when Huey might have been my stepdad. And that's- Wow. That is unbelievable. Now, if you, if you bragged about two stories and that one- is pretty incredible. I didn't see anything like that's the last thing. I thought you were going to say he called you up on stage and you sang a ditty. I did not think yeah. it was going there. Give me the other one if you've got time. Oh, I got time. Um, it's not nowhere as good as that one. You can't, you can't follow that. Still, um, it's, in, it's, it's in your frontal lobe. It came to the front of your head for some reason. So let's hear it. I do have a couple other quick. If you've got time, I mean, we've been going for over an hour, but yeah, I got a few questions after time. that. Okay. I got time. I just like, I don't know if you edit this and you don't want to lose your listeners. Mm, I don't think I don't even worry about that. I think it's an interesting okay. conversation. If people are okay. going to cut it off right now, before we go into this, then they can go fuck themselves. To <laughs> I don't okay. have to listen. <laughs> um, okay. So well, I'll tell you this quick one. So I think I might've mentioned this to you before, um, but not the whole thing. <clears throat> so when I was like at the height of my interviewing time at, at much more music, um, I had formed a pretty decent relationship with Nickelback. Um, I had done a bunch of interviews with them. I wasn't a fan of the band, but I wasn't a hater. You know, I remember seeing you outside somewhere interview. It's in my head. I don't know yeah. why, but you were out at a festival or something, weren't you? Yeah, but I did yep. multiple interviews with them. Okay, okay. Multiple. And they, so, and they knew that they were always getting a fair interview from me. And... Um, so there was one interview that was happening for their new album. I forget the album. And it was, I had this show called in 60 for a little while and it was a 60 minute interview. So you, so to get a 60 minute show, you need at least 45 minutes of talk time. Mm. That's a lot of time to get with someone as big as Nickelback. They, they don't give that time. Their publicists or people, they'll say you got 15 minutes. I had got to a point in my career where I could get that time. Mm. So I'm doing this interview with, with, um, we split it up. It would be Chad and his, I forget all the guys' names right now, but it would be Chad and his brother for one segment. And then two of the other guys for another segment. And then Chad and the other guys to have, make sure we had Chad throughout the whole show. Mm -hmm. 
Chad shows up and I, I don't mind telling this story now because it, it's, it's happened. It happened a while ago. And I think Chad is, has sort of, you know, fixed his life, but at the time, and this was right before it broke that he was seeing Avril Lavigne. Mm-hmm. He showed up to this interview fucking loaded. And I, it was me and like Entertainment Tonight Canada and E-Talk and he was drunk and I didn't want to interview him. I didn't want to, because he would embarrass himself. Good for you. The other outlets were taking it, right? <clears throat> so he, they say, no, he's going to do the interview. And then the, and the, and the publicist says to me, Matt, do you think you can, are you cool with this? I said, oh, good. I can, ha- I'll handle. Interview's going. Chad is not being an idiot, but he's drunk. And he's, he's like, he's, he's just, it's like two guys at a bar having, having laughed, joking about it. He's telling me, he's like, my mom loves you. My mom watches you. I'm going to call her right now. Like just a little bit belligerent. Right. But he, he had a drinking problem. So we did the whole interview, but it it wasn't good. And we didn't want to air it. And we weren't sure what we were going to do. We get a call the next day. I get a call uh, at my phone and it's Chad. And he apologizes and says, look, I really appreciate it. You didn't air that. My bad. Mm-hmm. I will fly you and your crew out to Vancouver because they were gone now from Toronto to my house and we'll redo the interview. And we said 100%. So within a week, we're out at Chad's house in, in I think, Burnaby or wherever it is out in the sticks of, in the West Coast. Well, Cranbrook is where they're from. Yeah. I got a buddy, Brad Lukowicz, well, that uh, tort. Well, I know that. Cranbrook, Cranbrook's Alberta. Right? No, no. Cranbrook's BC. Oh, BC. Okay. So wherever he lives, that's where it might have been Cranbrook. Cranbrook. Yeah, yeah. I know he's from down around there. Okay. So we do the interview. His bandmates take me aside and thank me and apologize. He takes me aside, apologizes, says, look, I'm going through some shit. And I apologize, which really gave me, I, I really respect him for doing that. And you know, and yeah. since then, having sort of become really close with Sean McCann from Great Big C, who's had battles with addiction, yeah. I really, really, in hindsight, respect um, what Kroger did. So that's why I don't mind telling the story because he's, you know, for whatever what people want to say about him, he's had struggles. Yeah, and he he made amends with me very quick. But here's the hockey part of it: we do the interview, great interview. He says, "You know, I got a hockey arena in my downstairs in the basement, right?" <laughs> I said, what in this house? I'm like, yeah, yeah, come on. Walk down a couple steps, and all of a sudden, we're in a fucking full on hockey arena. Whoa, really? Opens the door, electronic scoreboard. It's not regulation ice, but it's not far off. Actual <sighs> nets, shitload of skates and gloves and sticks, plexiglass. This is like. This is as big as the arena in Mount Pearl, Smallwood that we wow. had to play on when we were kids in his basement. Holy and shit. And he has had everybody there from the NHL, you can imagine, down. Wow. Well, I just have a buddy, Brad Lukowicz, got a couple of Stanley Cups, and Brad knows him well. That's why I thought, because he's said he's known him since childhood. I remember talking to him. It's very vague to me. He's from Cranbrook. That's just why I assumed. I could be wrong, but this, I, I know he's got a connection to hockey. A couple of videos, too. Uh, Rockstar video. Gretzky comes out a, a, in front of a pool. I don't... I, by the way, I, I think they get a... I, I, time passes, and people look back, and I almost consider them cheesy, but I, I 
think they're almost underrated in that vein, if you're going to look at them like that. I think they have some great songs, but all I know of Chad Kroger, is that how you say it? Yeah. Um, he's a charitable guy. Judging by what you're telling me now, seems like a really nice guy. I don't know much of him. I know people that have met him. He seems to have a connection to hockey that he appreciates. No, I got nothing bad to say about that guy. I cannot believe, though, even though he, I mean, I know a lot of people that like hockey. I wouldn't assume Gordy Howe is a fucking rink in his basement. Yeah, what? this is, and this is, this is a full-on rink. Like you could, you could have a, you could have a, a fucking league play out of that, out of his basement. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. So did you did you tell me you put on the skates? Nah, I didn't. We didn't have time. I I walked out in the ice. I took a I took a stick, took a couple you know sneakers sneaker shots. No skates on. Do you ever get onto that? There's a local. I I play in the Jim Cuddy has a game up there in Toronto. Uh, Dave Bedini. I go to a hockey tournament every year there. Well, you know, non pandemic yeah, uh, yeah. called Exclaim Cup Summit of Arts, and it's in April. Yeah, and you know, never, be good. you're like Mark O'Brien or Hawko. Like they <laughs> they were in the same boat growing up. Like I, I can definitely both of them like pretty good. Almost all stars once in a while got onto the bees. But in that world, you guys would be Gretzky. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I never did it here in Toronto. I did get asked a couple times, but I was out of town. I did play a bunch of times at the East Coast Music Awards uh, celebrity game. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I got to play like Paul Coffey was there one year and. I think Anders, Glenn Anderson was there. I'm, we um, missed each other. I played that a couple times too. And Classified, yeah, I, I, that's how I met Classified. Yeah, yeah. He, he so was I wearing think, a mic for the game. Yeah, it was once or twice, I think I did the East Coast Music Award one, um, which was a bit of fun. But uh, I, that's honestly the last time I played hockey. Matt, it's a thriving, it, it's like golf. Every, you, know, you know how like... If I live in Arizona, say, and you know you're you're a businessman, then they'll say, you know, get some golf clubs because that's where all your meetings are going to be done. Toronto, yeah. and I know you could say this about Canada, but more so Toronto and Calgary than I've ever been. Toronto and Calgary, Calgary, it all revolves around that. If you can w work your way onto one of the oil and gas teams in the D, it will lead to anything. It, you know, yeah. all kinds of jobs and indirectly. Toronto has that going on, and you're a good hockey player. You got to get on the you got to get on the ball. I know I'm gonna have to get some get my gear again. I I still have my O'Donnell Patriots jersey, and that's big uh, too. I, I played, O'Donnell I, Patriots is, is I got big for I got I got three Kentucky Cups under my belt. I did okay. Wow, that's that is good. Well, that means if you made the, that means you would have had to make it in grade ten. I was gone by then, but uh, I played. I tell you what, I made it in grade nine. Really? I did grade nine, ten, eleven, twelve. That's impressive. Well, you must have got fucked over on the Bantam All-Star team, really, looking back. Because you were, I left after Pee-wee, right? And I'd come back, and I'd watch, uh, and I, I don't want to knock anybody, but there was all kind Jeremy Charles, didn't, he, he played all the way up. He didn't make the Bantam team the one year. The next year, he made it. He was the best player, one of them, got scouted to go away, and they won it. So it was always – now it's kind of if you make it, um, you kind of – because there's so much connecting – connective tissue with hockey schools and extra yeah, leagues yeah. and metro leagues and this school and that school that people kind of stay together but i remember mount pearl growing up as a unit and all my buddies i mean i i was on the team at the very beginning i wasn't but you know it was nice to get under the blades even for one year and have your blades jacket or yeah, being yeah. on the high school team was really it i say yeah. it's because i left before that but if you yeah. had a high school experience and you got to do it from behind the eyes of a o'donnell patriot must yeah. have been great. <laughs> yeah, it was good. And we won. We won every year I was there. 
Well, you had a great team. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing Sean Gibbons would have been. Gibbons. Yeah, I played. I played defense with Murph, Trevor Murphy. Murph. Um, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, and when I was in grade nine, like I even think Donnie Jarvis. Did he yeah. Play? Yeah, he was deadly. He was. Donnie was a bit of a loon. I, I mean that like just a wing nut. Of, I, I, yeah. A friend. I still talk to him. I didn't for years. He reached out a little while ago. Um, yeah. I just mean Donnie was like he was everything. He was like tough. He was the best player. You know, if, if there was one of those, you know, they, they'd schedule fights after school and like he'd like actually be one of the athletes that was in them. You're like, oh, my yeah. God, Donnie's going to stand up to so and so. Some guy yeah, from yeah. the ghouls said this at McDonald's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Donnie yeah, was what everybody I, wanted to be for a while. Yeah. Um, I did have the high school hockey experience and I was I, like I was a steady defenseman. And even though I was like smaller, I always threw a big check. I was I loved going into the corner. So that's why I made the team because everyone's like, fucking Wells, man. He'll go right in with anyone. Well, you gave it up. Did you could have, yeah. I, I know you as a player. You you easily could have played junior. You just gave it up after that, did you? I mean, things. Life seems to have gotten in the way. Timing seems to be your uh, seems to have benefited you well. And I think it was time to hang the skates up when it was, was it? Yeah, my heart was never into hockey the way it was into music. I loved playing high school, but when high school was done, I was just like, nah, I guess I'm done. It's funny in Mount Pearl, I find where it was a lot of the things I did. You know, you just showed up and. Everybody went to baseball registration. Everybody went to soccer registration. Everybody went to hockey. Over the years, you know, most people dropped off, but that was basically it. And, you know, you hung around. I, I remember I always wanted to be creative, right? Like growing up, but I went to Mary Queen of the World. If, if I, if someone even found out that I attempted acting, I would have got a punch in the face. Like that's right. the way, you know, right. but, but what started to happen is senior high started um, doing that. What's it called? Et cetera. Yes. And I had friends on my team like Jason Foote and, yeah. and, and, and some others uh, that tried, you know, oh, my God, like Foote's playing so-and-so in the play. I was like, oh, God, yeah, he's yeah. going to get his ass kicked. <laughs> now it, it's changed. But I was honestly afraid to even let anybody know that. Um, yeah, I'd be home, like, writing poetry, writing my own little yeah, scripts yeah. and stuff. Um, well, man, listen, maybe of interest to your listeners, because I know that you've got people who just love your journey, but... I still have very strong memories of you in the dressing room, specifically at seniors um, hockey school in the summers. Yeah. I remember seeing you. I, I was always like super quiet. I, everyone was like, Oh, that's Wells, but I never really hung out because that's always sort of been the way I was. But I remember you playing tunes in, in the dressing room. I can't believe I, everybody's going to laugh. Cause I still do that. Yeah. I know you do. And the first time I really found out who the Steve Miller band was, was because of you. Really? That used you, to be one of my favorites. Yeah. The greatest hits. All the time. And I used to be sitting there going, this is cool. What is this? You know, and that was because of you. You know what, Matt? And this is true. This is directly. I talked about it a little bit before I came out, how I became a hockey player. Like I, I, I improved uh, at an accelerated level because what happened around that time, my dad started coaching the junior team and the, the ice would be there and they didn't practice and no one cared at the time. You didn't, you know, it wasn't like every minute is $20 or a dollar. Um, so I'd go up and just practice when dad was explaining drills, I'd do my little whirl, I'd work on my skating. And then at the end, there'd always be a few minutes and I'd, I'd be out there. I loved it. But what was happening was that I was seeing the junior players and they were playing that music. And then dad was playing senior a little bit at the time. And, they would play it down to the house. We got thousands of albums, records, right? So 
they would let me and Jeremy Charles DJ. We just couldn't play any of the new shit, they'd say. So we were like playing all the classics at the time. Um, new would have been Duran Duran. <laughs> um, but uh, the other thing was, I'm an only child. So, and, and I went to St. Bonds at first. I felt like an outsider. And then I came in after going to St. Bonds, which is all boys, to a grade six, come in like with zits all over my face. I skipped a grade. So, and, and people at Mary Queen of the World didn't like that. I, I, I was smart mouthed in class. And I don't mean like picking fights, but like I'd always have an answer that people go like, Jesus, Terry, you made the teacher talk for another 10 minutes. Let's just go to lunch. You know, I, I was one of those and it didn't always rub people the right way, but. So I felt like an outsider. So the junior hockey guys I would see, like, you know, there's a reason that guy's the captain and Pat O'Keefe and Keith Hoyles. Oh, they're arranging a team meal. Why would they do that? Right. And then and I noticed as I grew, I'm dumb like a fox. I was like, they would invite me to these things. And I'm like, oh, you know, it's nice to be included. So in my mind, that was the worst fear. So I always I, I can't believe that you noticed that. But as time went on and I've talked to a therapist, but I, I, I know this to be the case that you know, or at least assume it is, but that was it. I, I often felt alienated myself and that continued. Then, then all of a sudden I got comfortable here and I scored all these goals and everything, but then I left and I'm the youngest player in Canada and a team full of guys that smoke dope and drink. And so I yeah. always, that just kept coming back and hitting home. Like to, if you're in a dressing room, someone could be feeling this certain way and yeah. don't let that happen because that's the worst. I'd rather, you know, break my finger than be that guy in the dressing room. Well, brother, listen, I, I will say, like I mentioned earlier, and I did, and I, I, I have no reason to say this, right. And not blowing smoke. I do those early memories I have of you and your, and your old man was that I always felt welcomed and part of that community. And it wasn't always like that Mount Pearl. Like when I wasn't part of that, the minor major leagues thing, there were some of those players, the ones that you play with, they were just fucking dicks. Yeah. yeah and they totally. were dicks to me, but that was fine because that wasn't my world, but you never were. And you were the best player. And that, that is part of the reason that you went on your journey because you were a leader. You were, you weren't just skilled, but you were nice. And you were, you could be a leader and you could make everyone feel like part of the team. And that's how I felt. And I still remember that about it. Well, you know, I do appreciate that. And that it's always been just, it's always been something I, more so than like wanting to do it. It's a fear or an empathy for what it feels like not to be included. And honestly, uh, and, and I do appreciate that. Uh, but it, like you said, timing is everything. Um, if, if you were to, if someone was just to look at a piece of paper and say, oh, timing didn't serve me well because I underachieved in actual games played in the NHL. But I look at it. I know my life timing, like a couple of times I could have started hanging around with this crowd, but, and the crowds I hung around with like early on ended up being like good leaders. You know, then I went to Cornell. Like I said, I'm 14 playing junior knowing what I know now, just the guests I've had on this program in the last little bit, I could have gotten into Coke. I could have gotten into anything. They didn't let that happen. Right. So wherever I went, I always got right from eight or nine, got nudged right back on course. So it was a result of osmosis from what was going on around me. But I appreciate you noticing that before we go. Uh, I got to know, because Crown and Anchor, I haven't mentioned it enough. So it's a movie that you created. I, I'm assume you, you, I, I assumed that you co-wrote that, but you did. Right. Like it was your baby. Yeah, I, I wrote the original script and then my, Mike Rowe's younger brother did a rewrite, but all the characters and the story um, was something that I created. And it, it truly is a lot of it based on my actual 
family life in St. John's. Okay. So really like I resonated with this so much, like, I don't know if that's the right word, but I know Pete, like, I don't want to give it away. I don't want to give it away. Put it this way though. Put it this way. And I've lived down there and I've partied and I've seen things after downtown and I've, or, or whatever it might be, or before downtown or whatever you want to say, or, and I've worked with, um, disadvantaged groups. I don't want to say I am a social worker, but I've certainly done things like that. And, and the, there's a couple of conversations that stand out. I'll tell you where I'm going with this. When I first saw Reservoir Dogs, I'll never forget um, the conversation at the beginning. They're sitting around a table and they're talking about tipping um, amongst yeah. other things, but I love it. it. It stands out on its own to me as does same movie. The air gets cut off, stuck in the middle with you is playing. Yeah, and that's the brilliance of Quentin Tarantino often and I could say that about a lot of his movies like they're almost like a bunch of short films put together that's how great the scenes are and when you're talking to your kid in that movie and about to ask him to, to deal coke in school mm-hmm. and he's oh, I can just I'm seeing it going oh man and it's killing you you're an addict you're not that person right you can like deep down you don't want to do it and you can just look at going, oh, man, like to me, that was mesmerizing. The acting, the situation, the writing. And I'm going and I just had Brant Myers on here. Not, not that that would have happened, but, you know, he was going through addiction and he was telling me about it. And to just look at you and you look so helpless. And, you know, you're about to ask him the, the, the worst kind of question. But, you know, you can see you mulling it over. And it takes me so many places. How many times that I've been and work with people that. You know, you you wonder, but you're like, Jesus. And, and they tell you a story that like almost they broke bad. You already broke bad here. But wow, that was powerful. And the scene with um, sorry, Michael, with his oh, I forget his character's name, father in prison yeah, is yeah. like, whoa, like I had to breathe deep. So yeah. my question oh, is yeah. those particular <laughs> these questions are like fucking 10 minutes long. Um Combined with the soundtrack, okay, I know that that stuff comes from a personal place. Uh-huh. Was it that powerful at the beginning? Leave the soundtrack out. Or when you guys got came together and it started to be a team, um, because the movie could have been what it was, but there's I'm not going to give it all away. There's four or five scenes like that that are so visceral to me that I'm... I, I, it, it makes me, it gives me so many emotions. I'm, I'm proud of you as a friend, but as a film goer, I'm going, wow. Like they addressed that. They tackled it. It's in your face. It got reviewed really well. That baby that was yours at the beginning, how much um, tweaking before those memorable scenes or was that right from the beginning? Um, thanks, man. I appreciate you, you know, watching it and, 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 and connecting with that stuff. Um, it worked as well as it did because of the, of the, 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 it started with the three core guys. So I wrote the original version of the script. I wrote it for me and Mike to work together. And then we gave it to Mike's younger brother, Andrew, who also directed it and he rewrote the script. So, so with the exception of that prison scene, most of it is just him taking my characters and rewriting a new world. So the writing really has to go, credit has to go to Andrew. But the benefit that we had in working in an independent film, finding our own money and not having anybody sticking their fucking financial snouts into the creative process was that Andrew could just basically say, these are my two leads. I know them intimately and I'm going to write this for them. 
I know Andrew since he's eight years old, since I met Mike in the basement to be in Bucket Truck. Oh, beautiful. I watched Andrew grow up. He knows me. He knows Mike. So he wrote to our voices and to our strengths. And so all those things was why it, I think, came out so well in the filming of it, because not only did he write it specifically for us, but we trusted each other inherently. And that was the first time I've ever had such a large role in a film. Like I was, you know, co-leading with, with Mike, who had just been, you know, on the, one of the biggest show superhero shows on television. So Mike had a little bit of experience in that. I hadn't yet, but I knew that I could do it, but to be able to do it with people you trust. Um, so that's why it, it happened so well. The, the writing was good. Also, I know those people. Uh, like my, my, my mom's side of the family has just been ravaged by alcoholism. And that's how the movie, where the movie came from. My mom had uh, four brothers, three, three brothers, two of which um, lost their lives to alcoholism, same as her father, my grandfather. So my mom went one way and her brothers went the other way. My mom broke that, that addiction cycle for me and my sister. So the story of Crown and Anchor is these two cousins, one who breaks the cycle, but deals with it internally. Oh yeah. So those two characters represent my mom's journey. Wow, man. Like I've been both those guys. That's the thing. Like not, not at the extremes that they were. Okay. But yeah, I just thought that the delivery, um, the acting was superb and people can identify uh, and yeah, it's not just the, the earlier, the way I worded it was like, identify cause I'm from St. John's. No, not at all. But the, but the, the scenery and the culture that connect with that right away. But um, it's that everybody and with the mental health issues that really come to the forefront lately. And uh, people say that we got a ways to go. I think we've come leaps and bounds though. Like I just said to you, I internalize things. I mean, everybody can, as a kid, I got beat up with, for being creative. I mean, not that that's a fucking sob story, but I'm saying a lot of people internalize things and it becomes this, it often leads to addiction. Say we couldn't even talk about that. We couldn't talk about mental health issues leading to addiction, let alone one or the other openly, unless you went to an AA meeting 10 years ago, but now more and more people talk openly, more people are getting sober, more people are becoming vegans, more people are not that that matters, but you know, more people are making these personal changes. It's, it's like, it's like in 1980, if you were into working out and you saw an Olivia Newton, John video and it took the world by storm and gold's right. gym. But now I find it's this personal well-being. So more than ever, more than ever, I've seen the movie three times, by the way, but when I went to the theater, it was almost overwhelming for me to see you playing that character. So I got caught up in it. It's like city on a hill watching Mark O'Brien, like, I'm going, holy shit, man, mobster. I got to watch it twice. <laughs> it's just I'm so proud of him and he's going through and he's just giving it everything. But when I went back and watched, yeah, man, um, um, I, I can't say surprised is the word, but the the sum of uh, all you guys do do great. But the sum of its parts um, is is astonishing. So this got recognized all over the world, right? I mean, yeah, it, it immediately. um it was only released in North America. Um, it's just getting released internationally this summer. Um, it's an independent film with no stars. Uh, we, you know, we made a two hour drama. Everything people told us not to do. Don't make it two hours. Don't make it a drama. 
don't put all hardcore punk music in. It's going to be hard to sell. And we were like, well, that's what we're doing. So it did make it a harder sell, but critic, like critically acclaimed, which is kind of cool. And, you know, that prison scene is what got Mike Rowe, Michael, uh, nominated for a Canadian Screen Award for Best Actor. And then Stephen McHattie, who played his dad, he's only in the movie for hey, nine minutes. That was and my he, next question. He's like Alec Baldwin in fucking Glenn, Glary, Glenn Ross. Yeah. As soon as I rewatched it, I, I had to be reminded. He's that. I thought he was in it a lot. I rewatched it the second time, this being about a year ago. And then again, you sent one over. Thanks very much. I watched it again. Um, but yeah, I couldn't believe it. I went, whoa. Like in my mind, I just saw him in a movie. He's in the movie throughout, isn't he? Holy shit. Yeah. yeah. And Terry, that Stephen McCaddy, he's been in everything, right? Yeah, he yeah, he's great. Hilltops three. He was in Seinfeld. You know, like he's been in everything. He's from Antigonish, Nova Scotia. He was Kramer's psychiatrist when the oh psychiatrist. My God, yes. When it landed. Yes, right. You said it right away. I didn't. I just didn't think that he was in Seinfeld. So he is in the movie for nine minutes, and he <laughs> he won the Best Actor Award, the Actor, basically the Canadian Screen Guild Awards, for a nine-minute performance. It he was so. In, he flew in and out the same day to St. John's, and he just nailed it. I uh, I remember looking at it and 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 almost dissecting his lines. You can think I'm making this up. I'm not, but you know sometimes you get well, you know these self auditions, whatever. You got to go to an audition. In the last couple of years, they've been these self tapes. I I do one a week usually. So, um, I actually and often I'm like, how am I going to deliver this scene? And there's this way to do it. There's that way to do it. Um, right now I got to play a guy, and I I don't know whether to give him a Newfoundland accent or not, and. I looked at that and I'm like, I just thought about his dialogue, which is brilliant, but he could have, he could have done it so many different ways. And it's almost um, eerie. Like I look at it and he, he almost makes you nauseous. You're like, Holy shit, man. It's so powerful. Yeah. Uh, congrats he, to you guys for pulling that off. That was, that, that was yeah. an amazing thing. So when you, when you saw that come to its fruition, you must've been pumped. You don't, the way movies go, you never know, man, you could have had yeah. the wrong, you got the right instinct all the way along, but the lighting or, or something or, you know, the continuity or something fucked up. But this yeah, one... there's lot, lots of little happy accidents, you know, knowing, knowing it so intimately, like a, a day that the camera broke, the day we, you know, we didn't, we couldn't afford to get a new steady cam, like little shit like that where we wanted things to be different. But it was just the urgency and the, and the, of the independent spirit. And basically the same thing that, that powered Bucket Truck. And then, the people that we cast all worked well in that situation, whether it was McCaddy or Natalie Brown, who played my wife in it. Every she was single, great. Yeah, she's great. Every single person was not about ego. It was just about this great script that Andrew had written and they all connected with it. And it just was like a perfect storm. And I, one of the things I'm most proud of, of, of my life, like I, I, you know, I'm, I've, I've made a bunch of like acted in a bunch of movies since, and I hope to make more movies as a filmmaker but that will always be the thing to be quite honest with you that helped me find myself again. Because when I left much music and you can relate with this, I'm sure I didn't know who I was anymore. You know, without Matt from much music, I lost my identity. I didn't know what the fuck I was going to do. And it, yeah. and it wasn't until two years later when I made that movie that I feel like, Oh, I don't got to be Matt from much music anymore, which I'm sure you can relate with. I told I completely. Um, I, that's why my book is probably the most therapeutic thing I've done accidentally ever. I, I, cause so many people would ask, you know, well, what happened or, or so many questions that dwelled on like who they thought I was in a box. 
you know, and, and yeah. just just the story was one thing here. You can read the story now. Judge for yourself. But this is what happened. This is not what you're going to read in the paper. But the other yeah. thing was like people were seeing that I could actually write. So I was like, you know, I, I felt like my identity really was coming out because now I've always been a writer. Remember growing up, there was this thing on the go called the enrichment program. Yeah. And one day a week. That's it. So one day a week from grade six to nine, I, I didn't go to school. I went out. And it was for creative writing. I sucked at everything and I didn't want to go. I remember saying it. If I go out, they're going to know and I'm going to get beat up. I remember saying it. I do. And but anyway, we would go out and we'd take like astronomy and physics. And I, I, I was lost. I was interested, but I was lost. But we were like learning Shakespeare and stuff in grade six and seven and working on poem poems and how to put um, graphic images together with words. You know. So. I was always really into it and I was proud of it. And I felt like hockey kind of bottled that up. I didn't know how successful I would be. I was just like, now at least they can see that I, you know, I wrote this. It wasn't a ghostwriter. Um, yeah. You know, so it was therapeutic. The reward really wasn't monetary or in a way, I guess a bucket list. I have a book, but it was like, people were finally seeing me. This is me. Right. What's, what's interesting about it. And it's, I think it's, it shows you again, how, we have a little bit of a par parallel journey, you know, a hockey player, a guy in a metal band, there's, there's a, an assumption about who you are. Yeah. Murder, man. Like, yeah. But to show any sort of vulnerability is what we really should strive to do in life. If we want to be better human beings, not to say that someone is not, doesn't show vulnerability is not a good person, but to be able to say, look, I can empathize with you. I don't care who you love. I don't care what you what you identify as like that vulnerability when you're known as a hockey player or the singer of a metal band touring with Slayer, that, that is when I really started to go, Oh, I can sort of be who I am, be a better dad, be a better husband, be a better person. And you do feel bottled into it because there's these preconceived notions of who you should be. You know what? Uh, that, that couldn't be said any better. Um, I, I really identify, I didn't really ever, I don't think approach it or think about it like that, but that's right. You know, and there's something to, to showing that vulnerability for sure on, on many levels. Wow. Uh, I've kept you a long time. Do you mind going through the speed round here, uh, before we go? No, let's do it, man. Okay. Uh, hopefully there's still people listening. Yes. Well, like I said, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's my, it's my, uh, creation. Your creation was Bucket Truck and a lot of other things. My creation is this podcast. So uh, we're going to do it my way. Are you going to tell all your listeners that we're making a TV show together too? Well, we might be. We, we might be. It's, I didn't want to get there. I mean, I hope you Next don't podcast. think. I know that we, we've talked about it for those people out there. It's not why I had you on. And I didn't want you to think that or anybody else to think it. But, you know, we're working on something. Yes. Next podcast. Part two, we'll talk about it. Part two. There you go. Hopefully if part two comes, then we've done a successful job. Put it that way. Yes. Um, uh, you know what? I was going to go into the speed round. I'll tell you, this is what you're going to help me on after. Okay. Um, I'm doing a thing with Donnie Dumphy. We're going to do a cooking show that, uh, with Leon co called cooked, baked and fried. Okay. Yeah. So there's going to be a level of, I don't want to give away everything. Because there are parts that are really going to work, I think, and could be stolen. So I don't want to do that. But there's lots of cooking shows out there. Let's cook baked and fried. There's a level of marijuana involved and maybe some pairing. Who knows? But I'm going to play his buddy, Barry Ryan, who's Terry's okay. cousin. Okay. 
He was a huge Terry fan. Got Terry's like Montreal tracksuit. Got all Terry's hockey cards. Doesn't have many more. Just every single Terry Ryan card like 10 times over. Right. So because because I really can get in. It's hard for me to play Terry and be funny because I'm in that mode of being the hockey player or being the lead singer, like you said, of a metal band. Right. It's tough, A, to show vulnerability. When you do, it's not always funny. Uh, how is Donnie going to talk down to me? So I had to figure it all out. So anyway, we got talking. And I, I think Barry Ryan is the way to go, or at least something okay. close. So then I got to go, like, how far do I step outside myself? Do I do I talk like this? You know, he loves Terry. Terry took on 300. Terry scored 300 goals one weekend, took, took out six security guards up in Fort Mac. I seen it with me all eyes. Like, do I do it that way or or do I do somewhere in the middle? Anyway, I'm trying to find out who Barry is. So maybe you can help me with that or brainstorm or whatever it's going to be. Okay. I'm going to give him his accent and he's, I think he might have a catchphrase. Anyway, that's what I've been working on. <laughs> uh, to actually, you know, for everything you work on and it, it, in this industry, whether it's an audition or whether it's something you write, it's, it's, it's a fun process. O only like once in a while does something actually get produced or come to fruition. But right. I got to say, the, I love doing this stuff because the process is so fun. Yeah. I, I, I take this yeah. over a, a, a ivory tower job. Nine Brother, to five. Listen, <laughs> that, that's the win. And, you know, yes, you could have played 12 years in, in the league and made millions and millions of dollars. So many times I could have taken a job that was offered me to here, but I have monumentally, monumentally more fun making the shit that's never going to make me money. And, <laughs> And I'll never be a rich man, but I'm, I'm happy and I'll keep going there and I'll see what happens. There you go. Yeah. People ask me that question. They're like, uh, what's more important, you know, money or, 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 you know, peace of mind or what I'm like, well, you know, I write books for money. And if you know that equation, then you know that it ain't all about money. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't need money. I just, I just need enough. I just need enough to get by. Yeah. I like to have a little bit more so I can travel a few yeah. extravagances, not, not in the way of, I like to get, you know, upgrade my mountain bike, make sure my daughter <laughs> is in all the, you know, whatever she wants to be involved in and be able to pay my bills. That's what I want. And that's the truth. Uh, Chrissy or Janet on three's company. Who would you like to ask out? Which one? Janet. Interesting. Uh, have you ever, oh, sorry, you're in a tunnel. Okay. So you found you're an action movie star. I guess you're in that, you know, no, you're, you're in that situation though, that one would often find themselves in and nobody else ever would. You're in a tunnel at one end is Darth Vader. At the other end is Hannibal Lecter. There is, you could swim down and out the side of the mountain, but Jaws is swimming around. Right, so you got Hannibal Lecter at one side, Darth Vader at the other. Jaws is swimming in the water. That so your three ways that you could get out are all hindered by some sort of movie vill villain or creature. All you have on you is a hammer, a ham sandwich, and a copy of Macbeth. Which way do you go, and why? Well, either way, I'm going to die. So I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Hannibal Lecter because at the very least, I'm going to have a good chat before I go. Okay. Beautiful answer. I don't know. I was thinking about it. I don't know what, and I don't, I didn't add those features for any reason. I don't know what I do. I think I'd go to Darth Vader and give him, or maybe read him some Macbeth and just, if I remember, I don't want to get too um, scholastic here, but isn't it about the power and ambition can come back and bite you? And hopefully, 
Hopefully yeah. Darth Vader, because I know he's got some empathy and compassion, doesn't he? We see it in Star Wars yeah, 1 and 6. But, but only for his kid. I, I think you're fucked if you go Darth Vader. I think, I, I think Hannibal Lecter, I'll eat the ham, ham sandwich. The hammer doesn't get used. We'll talk about Macbeth and he'll eat my brains. And then that's it. Those are wow, good. good. Okay, at least that way you get a ham sandwich. Yeah. Uh, Casey Kasem or Ryan Seacrest? Oh, Casey Kasem. Give me a break. Uh, so who would you rather narrate your biopic? Would it be David Attenborough, Morgan Freeman, or Casey Kasem? Oh, God. Well, Morgan Freeman's going to be narrating everybody's. Um, mm. So I think I'll take Casey Kasem. And then maybe every now and then he'll, he can crack into the shaggy voice. <laughs> yeah, and you, you could do it posthumously now. That's what I meant. I mean, because David Attenborough and Morgan Freeman, of course, are still alive. But I think I'd go the same route. I was like... You know what I st- he's on my brain because I like just venturing through YouTube as, as a lot of it, not, not in the regular routes that a lot of people take. I'll type in something from the past and then try to connect it here. Anyway, I got to the American top 40 in the 80s and I listened to a bunch oh, yeah. and he's just got that voice like you. Rarely do you listen to a music show. And especially one on the radio, although, of course, he was on TV and look forward to the space in between songs. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a generational thing. I mean, you and I are the same age, so we grew up listening to Casey Kasem every weekend and probably putting a blank tape in your machine and taping the whole thing. Yeah, taping the whole, whole thing. thing. So that just reminds us of our youth and reminds us of better days. So that's yeah. why we want Casey Kasem. Maybe so. It reminds me of hanging out behind Sprung Greenhouse having my first <laughs> beer. Okay, if you had to convince Tweety Bird that Sylvester won't eat him if he catches him, Right. Or, no, sorry. You, you have to convince Tweety Bird that if Sylvester catches him, he won't eat him. Your life depends on it. You only have one sentence. What do you say? He's just a cat. How bad can it be? Great answer on the spot. You know, that took me. I came up with a few things, took me minutes. And I said, you know what? Am I going to ask him that? Because that's a tough one. There's going to be a lot of dead air. No, it's only a cat. How bad can it be, Tweety? It's a little cat. I mean, Tweety's fucked, but that's what I'd say. Yeah, well, your life depends on it. He's a fucking Tweety bird. There's millions of them. <clears throat> I guess there's billions of people. <laughs> your favorite Canadian landmark? I think, it, I think it has to be Signal Hill. So my next question was what your, your favorite Newfoundland landmark. So we're going to go with Signal Hill, Signal Hill. Your third question is what's your favorite Mount Pearl landmark? Well, I would say the old hockey arena, but that's gone in Smallwood Drive. Can mm. I still say that? You can, yeah. We're going to say that that's so legendary. Yeah, it, that has to be. I mean, you know, I my name was on a plaque upstairs for most improved player one year, and I'd go in and get a thing of chips, and I'd always go over and look at my name. Like Now they're all so- in a storage closet up to the glacier, but that's still there. I should try to fish out. Your, all those are still there, by the way. No, like Fonz, you know, like... I'll go my whole life, but this 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 icon of Mount Pearl, Fonz, who I think is still kicking, right? No, no, spoke about him before. He is kicking, but he just, uh, word is, he's in hospital. Word is he had a stroke, but we're waiting to see. He's oh. been in hospital for a few months, but I was explaining. I said, it's hard for me on the preamble, if you can believe it. I was mentioning legendary Mount Pearlers, oh, and Fonz, Fonz's name came up. Yeah, yeah there's, there's just something about... Um, 
there's just something about that old hockey arena, man. Like I saw you guys play the, that Russian team there that didn't have any gear. And, and you got, we had to give them our gear. Do you remember that? Yeah, but I, I was gone away, but I came back. I watched it. It was the Bantam team. My first year in Cornell. Yeah, Gibbons scored in overtime, I believe. Uh, yeah. But the place was packed. But that was yeah. the thing. That yeah, place. That, yeah. The Glacier, I've played seniors since up there, and I've gone even to watch the junior finals. A, the acoustics, but this is the way it goes. But, like, you know, you could argue this from Memorial Stadium to mile one. We're, we're in a new time, and that's the way it is. But I just, the Glacier doesn't have the same. Yeah. It's it, it just acoustics suck, and then it never seems packed. But the interest isn't there like it used to be anyway because there's so many other things to do, most of them online. But back in the day, I use that term too much, but this is true for people listening to picture. Like on a Friday or Saturday night, if there was a senior or junior hockey game, there'd be a lineup, like scalpers and everything. And even, this yeah. was Bantam. Matt's talking about Bantam. A Russian team came to play. It was packed. And back then, remember, you, you could you see there was a, a line where the smoke started, you know, the, the, the smoke filled the upper part of the rink and there was just a, almost a line going straight across and you, it, the play would go down one end and the smoke would, everybody would be smoking yeah. in the stands. It would move a little bit. They'd be going around selling 50-50s, hot dogs in the crowd with your yeah. dirt. It was classic 80s, but it was, um, it was unhealthy. It was, but, but it was Mount was Pearl. If there was anything on the go, there was that, there was that yeah. sense of community. But there was something special about that place, too, because Mount Pearl is just a small city and and hockey was so big there and everybody went and all these big events happened. And it was a game. There was a fight in the parking lot after yeah. there wasn't a game. You were drinking up behind Sprung or on the side. Whatever it was, there was always something happening there. I wish it, I wish it wasn't uh, gone. But I have I've gone home with my kids and drove past there to show them. And, you know, of course, they don't give a shit, but I'm like, just re I think there should now. be a there should be a monument. I really do. Yeah, I agree. I'm, uh, that, that's my favorite Mount Pearl. Um, I nearly got on town council last time. Six get in and I was seventh. I'm going to try again. And I swear to you, if I get in, not that this is uh, no one listening to this is going to vote me in. But if I get in, I'm uh, going to do something. Not, not not like resurrect a new arena or something like that. Right. There, there's reasons that it's, you know, but whether it's a monument and, but you know, you could have just a regular like plaque or, or you could have a Zamboni with a fonts. You, you, you could, oh. you could have some course sort of statue, right? Um, I endure, I endorse a Zamboni, a brass Zamboni statue with fonts driving it. I would, I would, I would donate to that. Me a hundred percent. And I don't think you get anybody to say no. no uh, so not. who knows if I get in in September, it might happen. Put these Henry's in order. Henry Winkler, Henry Cavill, Henry Fonda, Henry Hill, and oh, Henry. Henry Hill's the guy from Goodfellas. I don't know if you knew yeah. that. The gangster. Yeah, Fonda. And oh, Henry the Chocolate Bar. Yeah, Fonda, Winkler, Hill, Cavill, Chocolate Bar. That's, a, first of all, good memory. We're also practicing your association skills. Uh, Fonda, number one. There you go. Because Fonda is great actor. Uh, a lot of people, I think, would have seen his movies and not realized it was Henry Fonda. I threw him in there. I always wouldn't, but I figured uh, I figured you would. Twelve Angry Men. I went back and rewatched, and I forgot that yeah. he was even in it. Yeah, he's he's part of that uh, you know classic classic Hollywood uh, story, you know, of the movies he's been in. Uh, and that it's wild. A lot of those old movies because they different time and and circumstances and. Um, yeah, that old Hollywood system, like he sort of represents that. He never, he was never like, he never made it to like the McQueen or mm -hmm. Paul Newman sort of level, 
but he was always top 10, right? He was that's always exactly eight. where I was going. I love that you picked up where I left off because that's exactly where I was going. He's when you go back like 12 angry men say, which by the way, I love watching them because it's almost like watching a play. The old thing goes, yeah. some scenes are in a room for like 20 minutes and then they move on to the next room and you realize, you know, it's just the way film was. Um, that's why I believe uh, Citizen Kane is rated number one because I think it changed a lot of those conventions. Uh, I could be wrong on that. But yes, 12 Angry Men, uh, which brings me to, to talking about it looks like a play. Theater, don't you do some theater as well? You have? I, I have done theater. I would like to do more. I've come pretty close to uh, some, some musical, these big musicals here in Toronto. Wow. I'm not trained, but I, I almost got the lead in Once the Musical here, and I was close on that, and I was close to being one of the leads in Kinky Boots, um, but I'm not classically trained as a theater guy. I've got the rock voice, uh, but I did do one play here that ran in Toronto for about a month, and that was just when I started to do some acting. I wish I could do more, but performing live as a musician either with bucket truck or, or just me and acoustic guitar it's very similar to live theater and that's what i love about it it's just i wish i could do more but uh, right now there's no live theater happening for anybody uh interesting uh, and intriguing a horse walks into a burr do you call 911 or open instagram <laughs> um I think I, I think I just stand back and make sure no one gets hurt. I'm not going to be the fall, well, I'm well, the well, well, one, But I'm not going to be the fucking guy that puts it on Instagram. I'm, gonna, like, <laughs> okay. I'm just going to be like, okay, don't get hurt, but let's just see how this plays out. Okay. I want to experience this. Well, uh, listen, um, I always finish with song lyrics, or I try to anyway. Uh, and although these, this song was cheesy, in the 80s, I always loved it. And I think because it was associated with a certain thing, and it always has been, you look back with a guilty pleasure kind of thing. But I've loved this song. I looked, I looked for lyrics, Maddie, that could possibly match what you've done or our relationship or something in those heavy songs. But a lot of the time, and in your second interview, we will get into it because I love the lyrics of Bucket Truck, but I can't hear them. I got to Google it. I got to slow it down. It's my, it was my first criticism of Green Day. I didn't realize what basket case was about to like four years later. But anyway, um, I'll give you these lyrics rising up straight to the top, had the guts, got the glory, went the distance. Now I'm not going to stop just a man and his will to survive. I say it. And it's, of course, the iconic eye of the tiger, uh, which is associated with Rocky movies, of course, for anybody remotely wow. close to my age. But, uh, you know, it's timing is, is, has been great to you, but really it didn't seem like you were going to be stopped uh, from the first time that you answered the, the call way back when that uh, was almost the key that opened up the rest of your life. And you certainly never stopped. Uh, you keep writing, you keep producing, you keep following your heart. And it seems to be working for you. You seem to be going in the right direction. I feel a lot of parallels with you and uh, I've known you for a long time. So uh, I, certainly, uh, I certainly hope that everything works out. Uh, when this all ends, this pandemic, I know you're back and forth. I'd love to see you soon. And hopefully what we're working on uh, gets picked up. If it does, great. If not, though, Maddie, I know that we'll be friends, and I'll see you again soon. Right on, man. Thanks for having me, brother, and uh, don't give up. Thank you. I appreciate it, and we'll talk soon. We'll see you soon. Have a great weekend up there in T.O., my buddy. All right, man. There you have it. 
Matt Wells, uh, interesting cat. And I know this is advertised as a hockey podcast, but I don't think any of you guys really mind a, a great, interesting conversation with an intriguing, accomplished guy. Um, wow. And like I said, it's I've I've known Matt my whole life, but it's hard to keep track. He does so many different things uh, and he's always, always got something new in the oven. Always really creative guy, inspiring guy. Um, check out the movie I was talking about, Crown and Anchor. If, if there was one thing I'd recommend, check out Crown and Anchor first. It only came out a couple of years ago. Um, I believe it would have gained more momentum given um, if the pandemic didn't happen. I mean, you could say that about anything. I just mean like it, it came out in 2018, right? So it was just kind of picking up steam. I went to see it here. I was blown away. Um, look on Rotten Tomatoes. It only has 12 or 13 reviews, but all good. It's 100%, right? Great reviews all over anybody that watched it. And I'm telling you, the performances will blow you away. Very, 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 very uh, intriguing movie and then you know go from there and uh if after that i check out bucket truck um just google and process of elimination listen to 10 songs he's not kidding uh they're they're uh, they're loud they're proud but they're uh very intellectual and they're they're well-written songs and with a purpose and that's usually to me really a sign of a of a Good band, yeah. I mean, you want to be able to play good music, but I mean, they do. Their their style is is thrash, like hard. Although although they do evolve, I just mean as a rule, they they're, they're a little bit hard, uh, but uh, just creative and relevant. Uh, that's that's how I would always relevant. Uh, so thanks a lot, Matt, and stay tuned. Hopefully what we're working on works out. Um, Penny Posh, Women's Wear Reimagined. Check it out if you're interested. The hoodies are unbelievable, and we've sold a few in the last couple of weeks. Thanks a lot uh, for that. If you need any information, you can go to uh, pennyposh.com. But, uh, yeah, the hoodies, I think, are on for 129 but you get a hoodie, and uh, I'll throw in assigned eight by 10 uh, for 69 bucks. If you want a book thrown in 99 bucks, there you go. Uh, Wedgwood cafe, check them out. TJ's pub downtown. Come see, we got comedy night coming. The weather's starting to get nice. So we've opened up the deck and uh, makes all the difference. We got a great little pub anyway, but when the deck opens up, uh, there's such variety and, it's just such a nice break after uh, such a long winter, weather-wise and pandemic-wise. Those of you who follow ball hockey, um, one of the best ball hockey players uh, in the history of the sport, and I'm not exaggerating there, and my line mate, Jeremy Bishop, has started... Uh, uh, well, he started a ball hockey league uh, in Cornerbrook, I believe, or maybe he's doing it in Cornerbrook and Grand Falls. I'm just getting details, but he's got a step above, uh, and that's his ball hockey setup. He sells some gloves. Check it out on Facebook. Uh, Bish is a great guy and is a great ambassador for ball hockey for a lot of reasons. I'll get into that another time, but check out a step above 
a step above ball hockey at gmail.com is the email. If you're interested in any uh, ESOL's gloves and pads and sticks and all that sort of thing. And if you're from the rock and looking to join and you're from central to Western Newfoundland, give them a call uh, or look them up uh, a step above on Facebook and then a step above ball hockey at gmail.com. I got to go pick up my daughter. So I'm not going to answer any of your questions, any of your questions this week. I'm sorry. I just don't have the time. Uh, but I wish everybody a happy and prosperous weekend. And if you're like me, the days are getting longer. The weather's getting a little bit nicer. The temperatures are getting nicer. Today, I tuned up my mountain bike. I'm pretty pumped about that. More and more things outside just makes you want to live, right? You get more inspired. I find I take out the pen more when uh, there's days like this. Boy, do I love going out and maybe or maybe not smoking a joint, sitting under a tree, reading a book, and writing down some ideas. It's just... Uh, a, a, a gorgeous time in the spring you know i just love it it's my favorite time of year there are other times i enjoy in newfoundland september october can be just picturesque but i love the spring for those reasons if you're creative we talk a lot about mental health issues out here in addiction i'm telling you if you're creative and you got somewhere to focus that time on it'll help whether it's doing puzzles or drawing or writing uh or listening to music but creating music you know if you're into it oh, i never played guitar before i'm 55 years old who gives a shit grab one learn it why not uh, or or just the bongos for if i can you know i'm, I'm saying this because i get a lot of uh, emails and and a lot of texts and a lot of dms about uh you know people connecting when i had brant myers on or or ryan vandenbush or some of my stories, you know, with uh, struggles and adversity, whether that's uh, just mental conflict or whether, whether that's, you know, addiction or a situation you just lost your job, you just got divorced. These things, people have mental health issues because of those things. It's a chicken and an egg. Sometimes you're fine, man. If that shit happens to anybody, they get down. Talk about it. More so, go find something. Uh, I shouldn't say more so. I mean talk about it we know that but not a lot of people talk about the creative element go find something that you love doing and i'm telling you it will make all the difference be creative like matt wells it's always helped me uh, you might not be the best at a certain thing but it's not for anybody else it's for you right it's for you and we're all creative we're human that's what separates us from the animals Okay, everybody, I'm out of here. Thank you very much for listening once again to episode 49. I can't believe we're almost at 50, knock on wood. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks again. Catch you on the rebound. See you soon.